Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we were on a special mission related to our holiday in Markham, and just our latest set of visits to the Tadalon of bookstores, the Old Pier Bookshop. We'll explain in Derry and Tom's what was behind that, but, to cut a long story short, we settled on The Winds of Gath by E.C. Tubb, the first in a lengthy series charting the exploits of El Doomerest of Terror. Edwin Charles Tubb was a British writer of science fiction and other stuff, but I really didn't know much about him. Fortunately, though, I can turn to the enormous Encyclopedia of Science Fiction by John Clute and Peter Nichols, if it doesn't break my wrists, because it's massive. So, let's have a look. Page 1243. Tubb, Edwin Charles. UK writer and editor who began publishing SF with no shortcuts for a new world in 1951 and for the next half decade or so produced a great amount of fiction in UK magazines and in book form under his own name and under many pseudonyms, some still undisclosed. After the late 1950s, his production moderated somewhat, but he remained a prolific author of consistently readable space operas. Of his many pseudonyms, those known to have been used for book titles of SF interest include Charles Gray, Gregory Kern, Carl Maddox, Edward Thompson, and the house names, and I've got to say this is a cracker, Volstead Gridban, Jill Hunt, King Lang, Arthur McLean, Brian Shaw, and Roy Sheldon. At least 50 further names were used for magazine stories only. His first SF novels were pseudonymous. Saturn Patrol, as by King Lang, Planetfall, as by Jill Hunt, Argentis, as by Brian Shaw, and Alien Universe, as by Volstead Gridban. That's going to be my next character name, Volstead Gridban. He soon began publishing under his own name, with Alien Impact in 1952, and Atom War on Mars in 1952, though his best work in these years was probably that as by Charles Gray, beginning with The Wall in 1953. Of his enormous output of magazine fiction, the Dusty, the dusty Dribble stories <laughs> in Authentic magazine, 1955-56 standout, and E.C. Tubb also edited Authentic from February 56 to its demise, in October 1957. With Enterprise, 2115, he began to produce more sustained adventure novels. Alien Dust effectively depicts the rigours of interplanetary exploration. The Spaceborn is a crisp generation starship tale. These novels all display convincing expertise in the use of language and themes of pulp magazine SF, although they tend to avoid examining their material very thoroughly. Enterprise 2115, for instance, deals swiftly, and with E.C. Tubbs typical largesse, with reincarnation, the Superman theme, and cybernetics, along with the matriarchal dystopia. But the sustaining narrative, the pilot of the first spaceship, returns from frozen sleep to reinvigorate a world gone wrong through its misuse of a predicting machine, hardly allows much justice to be done to any one concept. Now, we'll come back to the encyclopedia in the outro, but... He also definitely seems to have been quite old-school SF, and I happened across a quote from him regarding the new wave and sex in science fiction. The more sex you put in a story, the less action, characterisation, futuristic background, scientific content, and plain old entertainment value you leave out. Despite this, Moorcock held him in high regard, at least according to a cover splash on a 2002 edition of The Winds of Gath, where Moorcock's quote is saying, His reputation for fast-moving and colourful SF writing is unmatched by anyone in Britain. But of course, we know that if anyone is a fan of punchy pulp adventure, it's Mike. Before his death in 2010, at the ripe old age of 90, Tubb wrote over 140 novels, and more than 200 short stories and novellas, including works in a variety of other genres. 
Most excitingly, for me at least, he wrote a handful of Space 1999 novelizations in the 80s that I must now track down. So, sit tight, take your stims, join Phil and I in Derry and Tom's for this old peer bookshop special to see if we survive our trip in Low Passage to experience for ourselves the winds of Gath. <laughs> Right, we're back in Derry and Tom's. We are indeed. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's a few weeks. Definitely the weather's hotted up and yes, summer's here. So we're right in the middle of that bizarre heatwave that Britain is just entering into. That people say, it's sunny, it's summer, but frankly, as northerners, the prospect of 35 degrees <laughs> in a couple of days is, uh, is pretty horrible as far as I'm concerned because I'm not really a heat kind of person. No, me neither. But funnily enough... The reason we're doing this, actually, we originally intended to record this when we were soaking up the sunshine in Markham. We did, a few weeks ago now. Mm. We went on our holiday to Markham, and one of our favourite places in the world, quite apart from Markham being one of our favourite places in the world, is the old Pier Bookshop in Markham, which is an Aladdin's cave of incredible second-hand bookshop treats that are all in no particular order, other than they are kind of ordered by genre. But once you get into that fantasy and science fiction corner, the books are too deep, the floor to ceiling, there are nooks and crannies, there are hundreds, probably thousands of old paperback science fiction and fantasy novels. So what did we decide to do when we were in Markham? We decided to see if we could find two books the same, didn't matter if there were different editions, but two books the same, and to read them. Yeah, and we decided to call it the Old Pier Bookshop Special. Yes. Yeah. Now, there is a slight issue with that in that I was a good lad and I read my book while we were on holiday, but you were slack and it took you another two or three weeks to actually do your homework. So we're actually recording this two or three weeks after getting back from Markham and also a week after my fabulous 50th birthday party, which you arranged, which was amazing. It was a very good success. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. But... We're recording this, so this is technically the old Pier Bookshop special from our holiday in Markham, even though we're recording it a little <laughs> bit later. Okay, uh, I take that one. Yeah. So what book did we end up finding? We actually, we always end up in there three times anyway, don't we? Because whenever we get our digs in Markham, it just seems to fall that way that we have to walk past the old Pier Bookshop to actually go anywhere of interest. When you say three times, that three times is probably when I go in with you. Yeah. Then when I'm somewhere else, you go in again. Well, this is true. The last day we were there, I went in twice that day alone. Yeah, oh, yeah, you went when I when I fell asleep once as well. <laughs> I did. Well, that's it. You were you were snoozing it up on that lovely afternoon, all relaxed, and I was like, "Oh, what shall I do? I'll go in the old paper bookshop." <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we spent quite a few bob in there, didn't we? We did. And the proprietor is a lovely fella, quite difficult to engage in conversation, but a lovely fella and very, very helpful. Always sets us up with a nice Hessian Markham, welcome to Markham bag with all our bits and bobs, gives us loads of bookmarks. I think we've got about two or three now, haven't we? Yeah. And the first time we went in, we searched high and low for twin copies of a book that we mm. could cover. And... We found duplicate copies of Mocock books, but they were always like the third in a series. We found duplicate copies of books that were just simply too long. And really what we wanted was a perfect, short, ideal genre fiction book. 
and we did find some books in the series that we ended up settling on but we never found two of the same and then I think on the second or third visit all of a sudden they practically fell off the bookshelf and hit us on the head two copies of The Winds of Gath by E.C. Tubb I'll be honest, I'd never heard of him before. I had, because when Pops gave me all those books back in the 80s, I got loads of EC Tub Doomerest books. But I didn't realise at the time they actually ended up going into the 30s, maybe 33 or 34 um, novels in that series. But I had lots of them. I had the first one, The Winds of Gath. And I had maybe another dozen of them going up to maybe number 25 just like Patchy, but I've kind of got this thing, despite being a Mocock fan and reading them in random order, I do kind of have this thing where I find it really, really hard to engage a book series if I don't have them in the right sequence, which is ridiculous given how I discovered most Mocock books and read them out of sequence. But I do kind of have that, um, not, not an obsessiveness about reading things in order, but I do like to read things in order. And for whatever reason, I never read any of those Doomerest books. I mean, the other reason is because I had bin bags full of those books and of course when we first started getting together you came to my flat in Hull and you saw just how many old genre paperbacks oh, there were in that attic living room <laughs> it was wall to wall wasn't it and the other problem was that first day when you found your copy of the winds of gas yeah I must have found six or seven others which yeah. were later in the series yeah and another reason I ended up going back in there is because I looked at them I thought no I'm not going down that rabbit hole again. I had them all. I got rid of them all. And then over the next few days, I just kept thinking about them. And I went back and I ended up getting about another six or seven of them. And then, laid in bed, late on a night in Markham, super chilled and relaxed, I ordered another half dozen off eBay as well. So I've now got... <laughs> oh, you kept that one quiet. <laughs> yeah. We are becoming the old pair bookshop. Yeah, so I've now got about 14 of them again. <laughs> oh, you kept that so quiet. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you you should have spotted them. They're on the landing outside the bathroom. There is so That's many... your fault for lacking observation skills. We have so many new books up there, I wouldn't notice. Well, that's true. They probably just got lost in the mess. Yeah, they? and okay. you get these things ordered while I'm at work, so I come home, you've already put them somewhere different. Well, that's true. That is true. In fact, we're sat amongst the, um, the booty resulting from... Visits to bookshops in Markham, Lancaster. I'm looking over there. I can see the folio editions that we got in Cleethorpes yeah. from that antique shop. Yeah. So we've got all sorts going on here. And of course, I'm just looking over at some of the... Uh, oh, good Lord. Yeah. Um, let's not go there. Some of your wonderful birthday gifts. Some of my wonderful well. birthday gifts. But the Sky Realms of Jeroen, which is a, a wonderful gift courtesy of the lapsed gamer himself. That's actually sitting on top of the classic Call of Cthulhu Kickstarter set, and on top of that is the Call of Cthulhu classic prop set from the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. And they're still sitting there where I opened them and piled them up on the back of the spare sofa. So yeah, this is getting out of control and we really need to do something about it. Because you have nowhere to put them. I know. I know. But it's so much fun, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's get back on point. We decided on the Winds of Gath and okay, we're about three weeks late recording this, so I read this three weeks ago, so I'm going to be leaning very heavily on Phil, who did her homework in the last few days. No, no, no. No, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I no, did, no, yeah, yeah. I did read it <laughs> when we got back, I did. Yeah, but you've reread it, the Do You Notes. Yeah. We have to talk about these covers, but first, as is traditional, we need to talk about the fact that we're having a wee drink for Dutch Courage. And I'm going a little bit traditional today. I'm drinking 
my teenage tipples. Well, teenage and early 20s tipples. At the moment, I'm drinking Red Stripe Jamaican, <laughs> Jamaican Lager, which I got from the shop where we just posted some bits and pieces out. Ian, watch out for your uh, letterbox and send to you, Steve Round. They will be dropping through, well, they'll probably drop through your letterbox before this even gets out, to be honest. Anyway, I'm just rambling. I'm drinking Red Stripe because it was four quid for four cans, and there weren't a lot of choice in there, and I ran out of my interest in beers, so I'm being a little bit little bit low-key, and I'm drinking Red Stripe Lager, and I've got to say, it's not as nice as it was when I was a teenager, but it'll do. What are you drinking? So you got me some some white wine for summer, well, us. Yeah. Yeah, and... yeah, us in inverted commas. <laughs> anyway, we do like naked wines. It's not mm. that I'm a snob, but they just do have yeah. very different wines. Other mail order wine companies are available. And I've opened one by Christian Patat, and he does a really nice red, a passamento, which I, I really enjoy. Mm. But this is a white pecorino, and I have to say, it is really lovely. And I know you had a little taste of it as well and it's yeah, it's all right um i've never heard of a, a pecorino wine i always thought pecorino was cheese but that just goes to show what i know but maybe pecorino is just the name of the wine because actually it says tier de chieti bianco 2021 and what what so what we're going to say so it's it's 12.5 percent which is all right for no. a white mm-hmm. i think we've explained before on this podcast that we're extraordinarily basic bitches when it comes to wine <laughs> and when i used to drink a lot of red wine i just used to gauge it simply by the higher the alcohol content the more likely it was that i would like it simply because the lower the alcohol content the more likely it is to taste like vinegar so what we've got it's a true privilege for a small grower and winemaker like me to be able to share my passion and love for wine with the angels. Your ongoing support allows me to discover blah, 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 blah. Pecorino is bursting with refreshing citrus fruits, balanced with a smooth, rich texture. This wine is perfect for sharing with friends over a picnic or with salads or seafoods. Yeah, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think your exact words when you read that out earlier on was, fuck off, it's mine. I'm not sharing it with anybody at a picnic or otherwise. That's fair. I'll leave you to share it with me. But that's because you love me, and that's fine. And we do share wine. We do. We share. So, yeah, very nice. Uh, Red Stripe says nothing on the can other than Jamaican lager beer. And it's a a tender, 4.7%. Oh, you know, it does. It says, since 1928, Red Stripe has embodied the spirit, rhythm, and pulse of Jamaica and its people. Uh, But it's brewed in the UK by Heineken. Oh, is it? So that's, that slightly um, undermines that message, I think. It doesn't feel very Jamaican, does no, it? No, <laughs> but it'll do. But anyway, that's what we're drinking. So let's get on to the covers of the editions that we've got. I'll be honest, I haven't seen yours. Well, let's start with yours then. So you have the Arrow SF edition from what year? First published 68, Arrow edition 73. Right, yeah. So uh, first published by Rupert Hart Davis Limited 68, Arrow edition 73, so that's the first Arrow edition. This edition is the 1976 Arrow edition. So, Uh, what's on your cover? So, it's fallen apart, which thank you for giving me this copy. That's okay. I gave the good one to Graham. Uh, Unlucky. No, but of these two... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Yours is in slightly worse condition than mine. Yeah, thank you. So, describe that psychedelic cover. It's got a man stroke alien on the front... It looks like he's got the world and the oceans as mm. part in his within his body. Yeah. And then there's other worlds. And it's quite a nice cover, I have to say. I it's really a nice like cover. It. It's very psychedelic. It's yeah. got like some kind of big purple hand reaching towards the green planet man. 
It's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Nice sun-faded spine as well. Yes. Yeah, and what's on the back? Yeah, it's just, just more psychedelic purple clouds and things. And the mountains. Yeah. So, old Peer Bookshop chappy, when I got that, it was I think it was 60p, and he said um, that is one of the oldest books he's had in the bookshop for the longest time. He said it's been in there for years and years and years. It's now ours. <laughs> yeah. Now, mine, on the other hand, from 1976, well... I'm not entirely sure this is reflective of the contents in any particular way. Because I'm assuming this is the protagonist, El Dumarest, and he's a bronzed, muscular hunk wearing what looks like a chainmail nappy, and not a lot else. He's got a sash, he's got a little cute helmet, and he's got a little blonde pawn moustache. I have to say, having read the book twice... That is not who I pictured no. at all. This looks like a standard sword and sorcery, quite generic cover. And he definitely was fully clothed, not yeah. dressed, dressed like that. He's holding on to a babe who doesn't look particularly happy to be held on to by him. No. And there are numerous cliff sides in the background that all have like skull faces. And probably the one... Maybe the, the, maybe there are two concessions to it actually being sci-fi, not fantasy, in that there's a spacecraft in the background that looks a little bit Chris Foss-like in design, and he has some kind of laser pistol or laser rifle on his back. And on the back cover, there's some weird techno woman in a red cloak. I'm guessing that must be the matriarch whom who, who we, we find. Is it the matriarch or is it the the old witch? Could be. Could be. Perfectly possible. Let's have a read of the back. So on the back of mine, it says, El Dumarest, space wanderer, gladiator for hire, seeker for man's forgotten home. Dumarest's search begins in the ghost world of Gath, where he becomes unwilling champion of the matriarch of Kund and must undergo a fight to the death at storm time. Victory could give Dumarest his first clue to the whereabouts of the planet he fled from as a child, an obscure world scarred by ancient wars which lies countless light years from the thickly populated centre of the galaxy, a world no one else in the inhabited universe believes exists. Earth, birthplace of man. Mm. I'll be honest, if I'd have read that and then read the book, I'd have been very disappointed, because that, to me, doesn't describe what I've read. Yeah, well, it kind of hits certain points. It hits certain points, but it's almost like, this is Conan. Yeah, what's the back of yours? Mine is Gath. A strange world with strange potentialities. That was why Syme had brought his wife there, dead in her coffin. Why the matriarch of Kund went there to pick her successor. Why the prince of Emmon went there to win a world. But Dumares was there for no reason other than that he was stranded. A traveller in low passage, without money to get home, without knowing even where home was. That that's a bit more it. accurate. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a bit more accurate. But it's instantly throwing up uh, uh, some things there, these descriptions. And one of them is this idea that it's in a far future and Earth is, the birthplace of man, is essentially forgotten and has become almost a myth. Does it even exist? Yeah, because some of the characters are, are, are like... Why are you talking of this place that doesn't exist? Yeah. Earth is what is the soil. Yeah. What, what are you on about? Yeah, it's planet Earth or dirt or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which, funnily enough, when I read that, I was like, oh, because I remember reading, and I think it was in 2000 AD, it might have been a future shock, 
where someone uses almost that exact line. It comes from a planet called Earth or Dirt or something. And it's oh. straight from EC2, isn't it? Straight from Doomerest. Yeah. And there are lots and lots of things in it here. So this is from the late 60s. They are a fairly lightweight. It is a fairly lightweight throwaway story. We'll talk about the story shortly. But there are a number of things in here which have popped up in other things. And this idea of Earth, the birthplace of man, being lost to myth and lost to history and lots of people not even believing it really exists. Well, that's a core tenet of Battle Battlestar Galactica, isn't it? The 13th colony of man, Earth. You know, that nobody actually believes exists. And there is a bit later on when we get to it where I think Dune, that's totally Dune. Yep, yep, there are elements of Dune, although um, Dune was written before this. Um, oh. Yeah, so that idea of like, you know, a desert world and. Um, but The desert world, but also the some of the weapons. Pund, some of the weapons, um, the religious orders. The reli- yes. Yeah. So, those are the additions we're working from. And before we go on, we've got that representation of Doomerest on the cover, which is kind of wildly inaccurate, but most of the copies of the Doomerest books that I've got all have the same art, similar art by the same artist. But the later editions. I've got here Doomerest Saga 20, Web of Sand. Doomerest on the cover is wearing what looks like blue pants, Can I have a... jack boots, a nice blue bomber jacket, and he's got a mullet. That, I think, is probably a little bit more reflective of the stories in that there are sci-fi books, not sword and sorcery books. It's almost like 70s, 80s, isn't yeah, it? He's got, he's got a smart, smart mullet, though. Yes. Yeah. Bomber jacket, mullet, nice boots. But he was fully... That just is such a wrong representation to me. Uh, Well, throughout those covers by this guy, he never ever does really gain any substantial amount of clothes. So, And it doesn't say who the artist is. Because he just moves from one planet to another, so all his earthly belongings, he keeps on him. So he travels very light. Yeah, and we're going to have to... Well, we, I say we... I'm going to read some more of them now that I've got them. I think I've got two and three now, so I'm going to give them a look. Have you now? Yeah, but let's uh, let's let's get into it, shall we? Okay. So I'm just going to read a little bit. He woke counting seconds, rising through interminable strata of ebony chill to warmth, light, and a growing awareness. At 32, the eddy currents had warmed him back to normal. At 58, his heart began beating under its own power. At 73, the pull motor seized help in his lungs. At 215, the lid swung open with a pneumatic hiss. He lay enjoying the euphoria of resurrection. It was always the same, this feeling of well-being. Each time he woke, there was a surge of gladness that once again he had beaten the odds. His body tingled with life after the long sleep during which it had been given the opportunity to mend minor ills. The waking drugs stimulated his imagination. It was pleasant to lie, eyes closed, lost in the pleasure of the moment. You okay? The voice was sharp, anxious, breaking into his mood. Dumeres sighed and opened his eyes. The light was too bright. He lifted a hand to shield his face, lowered it as something blocked the glare. Benson stood looking down at him from the foot of the open box. He looked the same as Dumeres remembered, a small man with a puckered face, an elaborate fringe of beard and a slick of black hair. But how much did a man have to edge before it showed? So it starts with him coming out of suspended animation essentially. So written in 1967, that idea of working from suspended animation, the pneumatic hiss as the box opens, well we've seen it in Alien, we've seen it in Aliens, it's kind of a sci-fi trope now to some extent. 
in those sci-fi universes where travel takes a long time, where there's no faster than light travel like Star Wars or something like that. It's quite a familiar feeling scene. But from 1967, predating even 2001 A Space Odyssey, that's quite cool. So it's a really nice opening, but again, something really, really interesting, and this is something I completely missed, of course, because I never read it, is the concept of having to take really dangerous drugs to travel by what they call low passage. Yeah. If you're basically skint, or you win certain lotteries, or you get certain payment for doing basic tasks, you can travel in low passage, but there's a pretty good chance that you won't wake up, and you have to be incredibly fit, incredibly healthy to maximise your chances of survival. And even then, there's no guarantee that you'll survive in low passage. Because I get the impression they lose a lot of weight because the yeah. first thing they do, Benson was feeding him up. Yeah. And that's only because he wanted someone to talk to. And if he hadn't done that and he had woken him up like he should have when he got to the planet, he wouldn't have got as many nutrients. Yeah. So he'd have to have found a way to build up his his muscle and fat yep. again. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't sound particularly a nice way to travel. No, and I think there's a reference, isn't there, to that's how they transport animals as well. Yes. So low passage is generally used for animals and people who are skint. <laughs> and and he's come across other people like Benson who wake them up just to ask them about it, and he feels like they have almost this envy because they feel it's something exotic. Yeah. But it's not, although he doesn't kind of explain how he got drawn mm. into doing that. Yeah. Well, in the world of role-playing games, there's a role-playing game called Traveller. And I suppose if you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, the big three in role-playing games were Dungeons & Dragons, obviously, Call of Cthulhu and Traveller. I think some people would argue that there was a big two and Call of Cthulhu came along and maybe made it a big three. Mm. But Dungeons & Dragons was about dragons and elves and halflings and all that business yeah. and treasure whereas traveler was about space trading and traveling from planet to planet trying to make money and there was the concept of low passage and high passage i came across in the traveler role-playing game i had no idea uh-huh. that it originated with with the doomerest books so it's, it appears that the doomerest books have been an influence on on quite a few things and certainly an influence on the traveler role-playing game mm. so the traveler role-playing game is quite um, infamous in that when you roll your character you create life events rather than just rolling up statistics you go through a number of tables creating life events you can get promoted you can serve an additional tour of duty in the army or the navy or whatever um, but actually you can die during character creation and have to start all over again with a different character and in the game low passage has a chance of death so it's it's lifted straight from the pages of Doomerest which is quite interesting. Mm, yeah, so there you go. So anyway, what planet is he on? Where has he turned up? He's on his way to Gath, but yeah. when he was put under, he thought he was going to another planet. I've forgotten which. Yeah. And he's obviously very unhappy, asking about all the other passengers because he was stood with other passengers. But obviously this matriarch mm. turned up and took over the whole ship, but because he was already under... Yeah. They left him. Yeah, so Benson explains that they've got this charter from the matriarch of Kund, and he's along for the ride and, and had no choice in the matter. And he's very unhappy when he finds out where he's going because he knows it'll be a lot harder yeah. to get off it. Yeah, so he thought he was going to Broom, Broom to get some it. work. But it turns out he's at this place called Gath. He thinks, close your eyes, hold your breath, concentrate. On Gath you can hear the music of the spheres. So claimed the admin, 
they could have been telling the truth. Doomrest had never wanted to find out. Gath was for tourists with a two-way ticket. It was an attraction with no home industry, no stable society in which a traveller could work to build the price of a getaway fare. A dead, dumb, blind alley of a world at the end of the line. He stood at the edge of the field, looking it over. He wasn't alone. Down past the levelled area, crouched in the scoop of a valley running down to the sea, squatted a huddle of ramshackle dwellings. They reflected the poverty which hung over them like a miasma. They gave some shelter and a measure of privacy, and that was all. Further off and to one side, on some high ground, well away from the danger of the field and the smell of the camp, sat a prim collection of prefabricated huts and inflatable tents. There sat the money, and the comfort money, could provide. The tourists who travelled high, doped with quick time so that a day seemed an hour, and a week a day. Those in the camp had travelled like Doomrest, low. Those who rode middle stayed with the ships which were their home. They would stay, so Benson had said, until after the storm. Then they would leave. Others would return for the next storm. On Gath, that was about four months. An age. It sounds like a bit of a shithole if you're uh, if you're in low passage. Yeah. I don't know why, but in my head it was almost like he'd been dropped off in a desert. Hmm. So there's very limited work, very limited food, a lot of poverty. Yeah. And it was a huge class divide. Yeah. So I can understand why, why he was so peeved. Hmm. The description of the environment and the look of it reminds me a little bit of Raised by Wolves. You know, that yeah. rough, deserted, deserty area with nothing that grows particularly useful and these like prefab huts that people are staying in and the kind of the wealthier people have got the nicer digs that's because they're a, just as tourists. Yeah, that's probably a better representation because it isn't a desert. Yeah. But it feels very barren. There's yeah. very little for people to... Yeah, it's people, rubbish. People go for these storms, don't they? Yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? And it's like you just read. Yeah, they get a two-way ticket because they don't want to be dumped there. No. And it's usually just... Well, I don't know what makes travellers choose to go there. Yeah. Well, they go there because of these storms, don't they? No, no, no. Sorry, not the travellers. The people like Dumeres. Yeah, uh, well, I think they're there... Through misfortune, he as much is. As anything. Th- but what about the others? I don't know. Yeah, you you get the sense that people travel low passage in order to just try and scrabble together enough funds to buy low passage to the next place. Yes. It's almost like a lot of these people are poor prospectors yes. of the travelling from planet to planet, trying to find somewhere of number one scraping a living, and number two maybe at some point making enough of a living to actually be comfortable. But there's a real desperation to them, and we find that out later on when they end up having to fight each other. There's a real desperation about, in this future, if you're poor, you're basically going to starve, or be exploited, or be forced into gladiatorial combat for the benefit of the rich, or end up you know, having to beg for, essentially for arms, for, from whatever the local religious order is. And we find out a little bit more about them a little bit later on. But it's funny, isn't it? Because he doesn't fit that totally, does he? And I wonder, and again, we'll get into it later on, it's because of his his starting life yeah. as to why he's a bit different. It feels like he feels that he's got no, he's rootless. He has no stability anywhere, and yeah. that's how he got into it. Yeah. And, and like all the others, he travels from planet to planet, earns enough money to pay for the next flight to the next planet yeah it's like he's looking for something it feels to me it's like the man with no name drifting from town to town 
isn't he? It is. Trying to find whatever is missing from his life. Yeah. We also find out a little bit now about... There's a guy called Megan. Yes, I like Megan. He's a very good friend. Yeah, so Megan's someone he's known for quite a while. Like other travellers, they get to know certain people, they end up at the same planets, don't they? Yeah. There's a really nice introduction to him. It says, a man sat before the open front of one of the dwellings. It had been clumsily built from scraps of discarded plastic sheeting, supported by branches weighted with rocks. The man was bearded, dirty, his clothing a shapeless mess. He stooped over a boot, trying to mend a gaping rip in the side. He looked up as Doomrest approached. Earl! The boot and scraps of twisted wire fell aside as he sprang to his feet. Man, am I sorry to see you. Megan! Doomrest's eyes probed the dirt, the beard, the shapeless clothing. As bad as all that. Worse. Megan stooped, picked up his boot, swore as he thrust a finger through the hole. Just arrived? Yes. How was the handle on your ship? Megan was too casual. A decent type? Couldn't be better. Why? Decent enough to trust a man? He isn't a fool. Doomrest sat down before the hut. You know the rules, Megan. No cash. No ride. How long have you been stuck here? Over a year. Viciously, he flung down the damaged boot. Four times I've seen the ships come in, and four times they've left without me. If I don't get away soon, I won't be able to get away at all. Even now, I'd be taking more than a normal risk. He was optimistic. Beneath the dirt, Megan was gaunt, his clothes hanging from a skeletal frame. For him to travel low, in his condition, was suicide. So again, you've got this really quite cool Western idea about how just how poverty-stricken these travellers are and how this guy's been on this planet for a year trying to scrape up enough resources to get passage off-world. And even in the state he's in, he probably won't survive it. And it's being poor in this future is really rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> really, really rubbish. And he, and he picks up straight away that Doomerist looks quite healthy. Yeah. So he instantly found out that he'd been talking to the captain of yeah. the vessel and yeah. who was feeding him in exchange for that because he looked really healthy. Yeah. So travellers know how people look when they've been in low passage and come and are woken up and yeah. how much fat yeah. they lose. And... He gets together with, with Megan. He's, uh, he's met an old pal. Megan's in a bit of a state. He's got someone to, to hook up with to try and find food. And to try and get his bearings. And you can tell that they're friends because the first thing he does is help Megan to patch his boot. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is very, very Western. In Chapter 2, we find out about the Matriarch of Kund. Ah, tell us about the Matriarch of Kund. Very old, very hard. You learn as you go along that they're not allowed to marry, they're not allowed to have kids. They're expected to just rule the planet and... Yeah. Uh, their kingdom and their kingdom is their life by doing that they have to to make sure everyone stays in order so yeah quite a hard woman but i have to say i soften towards her as the story goes along because i think she changes as she goes along as well yeah so what's her game she's there to name her successor so i don't know exactly how old they don't they don't say how old she is but she's very old is what they keep saying but she's there with her maid cena of toth Toth. And I'm assuming that's the babe on the cover of this I'm book. I'm assuming it is as well, because yeah. she's supposed to be very beautiful. Yeah. And they feel that she, she's about to name her a successor. Apparently she's already named two or three. They've been assassinated. There's a lot of assassination lots going on. Lots and lots of assassinations <laughs> going on, yeah. But also, I want, 
I'm assuming she's there for the stones as mm. well, because that is part of the journey. Yes, because there's something about the storms where your past talks to you and there's some kind of presence in the storms that has some kind of psychic connection with the people stuck in it, for better or for worse. We found out that's why it's such a hot tourist spot, yes. because these storms are, are pretty wild. It's not just bad weather. And, yeah, so she's there to actually, not just to name a successor, but also to experience the storms for a reason that we're not really aware of. No, I actually think she knows she's coming to the end of her life. Yeah. And I think it's a, a way of maybe connecting with people from her past. Yes. That's how I've yeah, that's taken right. it. And, and that becomes clearer as the book goes on. Yes. And she also has this sidekick. Oh, Dine. Yeah, so... Really um, didn't take to him at all. A dying world, said a voice. It was soft, carefully modulated. Angered at the knowledge of its inevitable end. A little jealous, a little pathetic. Very much afraid, and almost certainly cruel. You were speaking of Gath. Sina Thoth, ward of the matriarch of Kund, stayed looking through the window set into the wall of the tent. There was no need for her to turn. She had recognised the voice. Synthosilk rustled as the tall figure of Cyberdyne stepped to her side. What else, my lady? I thought it possible you spoke in an allergy. She turned and faced the cyber. He wore the scarlet robe of his class. Beneath his cowl, his face was smooth, ageless, unmarked by emotion. So the matriarch has got this cyborg kind of... Yeah, the, the taken went... They're from the Psy clan, and they're taken as children. I don't know exactly the ins and outs of what they do to them, but obviously they take away their emotions. Yeah. They add in bits of machines so they can live longer and communicate with the main Psy clan order. Yeah. But, yes. Yeah. I think it's a lack of emotion. I, well, I really struggle. You to... get some really nice flavour here as well about this world, or this universe that they live in. And he says to her, he says, to be a ruler is not an easy thing, my lady. It can be worse to be a subject. She turned from the window, her face pale beneath the black mound of lacquered hair. I saw one before we left Kund. A man impaled on a cone of polished glass. They told me that his sensitivity to pain had been heightened and that he would take a long time to die. He was a traitor, my lady. The manner of his death was chosen so as to serve as an example to others who might be tempted to rebel. But your advice, she tightened her lips at the inclination of his head, so, you oppose rebellion? I do not oppose. I do not aid. I take no sides. I advise. I am of value only while I remain detached. He spoke his credo in the same soft, even modulation he would use to announce the arrival of battle, murder, and sudden death. She hid her repulsion as she heard it. It was instinctive, this dislike of hers for the cyber. As a woman, she was proud of her sex and the power it gave. She liked to read desire in the eyes of men, but she had never read it in the eyes of Dine. She would never read it. No woman ever would. At five, he had been chosen. At fifteen, after a forced puberty, he had undergone an operation on the thalamus. He could feel no joy, no hate, no desire, no pain. He was a coldly logical machine of flesh and blood, a detached, dispassionate human robot. The only pleasure he could know was the mental satisfaction of correct deduction. And I can understand why she don't like him. Yeah. Because I don't either. Yeah, pretty pretty tough on the guy to go through that as a child and be, oh, to be turned into this. Yes. But it's very like 
Mentats in Dune. They're trained and conditioned from childhood to essentially be human computers. But they have, they do have a bit more emotion, or seem to. They have, have something of more emotion and personality. So this is a little bit more extreme. Yeah. But another interesting thing about potential influences connections is called Cyberdyne, right? Yeah. In the Terminator movies, what's the name of the company that creates the artificial intelligence, which goes on to destroy the world and create the Terminators? Cyberdyne Systems. Oh, is it? Yeah, exact same spelling as well. Cyber something. I didn't yeah. realise it was Dyne. Yeah, Cyberdyne Systems. We find out a little bit more about Cyberdyne as the book goes on, of course, and, and later on we also find out there's something of a troubled and complex relationship develops between Doomerest and these human computer cyber type people. Yeah, but that develops further on. I mean, he he says it very coldly that, well, emotionlessly. Yeah. That this man was there to assassinate she assumes it's the matriarch and is absolutely dumbfounded when he implies that it's her yeah because people believe that she's the the successor yeah and there's another rival isn't there lady moira who has a claim to the throne um, of the matriarch and so there's all sorts of machinations going on with assassinations and everything else mm. we were introduced to gloria the matriarch of kund and it says a bell chimed from an inner room of the complex of inflated plastic, which was their temporary home. A curtain swept aside, and Gloria, the matriarch of Kund, stood in the opening. She was very old, but as a tree is old, grown tough with age and battle, hard and determined, and drawing strength from that determination. Two other guards attended her, hard-faced mannish women, <laughs> hard-faced mannish women dedicated and fantastically loyal. She waved them aside as she moved towards a chair. So the matriarch. There's also a reference, I think, where she's quite she's quite hard. The matriarch, isn't she? And she's very much like. And again, June connections. This is this is post June. She's very like um, the Reverend Mother Ellen oh. Mohim in that she's old, she's hard, she's driven. So there's a suggestion, isn't there, that she takes some kind of drugs to deal with those pesky female hormones? Well, I don't know if it's pesky female hormones. It's in a pomanda. And they sniff the exotic spices. Yeah. And from it, she gets younger, her head gets clearer. Yeah. So she can function for a bit, but then she'll pay for it later. Yeah. So it's like speeding things up so she's a bit younger again and yeah. can manage. But you're right in that association with, with June again, because her life is about being the matriarch of the plant of her yeah. kingdom. And in June, and rule. they use the spice melange. Of course, yes. They? So, very similar. And, and you know, a lot of this stuff... That, so this is in, very influential, I think, on a lot of things, but it's also very heavily influenced and drawn from, from things like June and more established things, as you suggested earlier on. And it's obvious that Gloria, the matriarch, has, has a real soft spot for yeah. Sheena. Can I comment at this point in the book that the names is bizarre. So they'll go they'll talk about the matriarch of Kund. Yeah. They'll write the matriarch of Kund in full every time and then they'll call her Gloria. Yeah. And then they'll call her Gloria and then they'll go back to the matriarch. Yeah. And they do the same with all of them. Yeah. So uh, Sheena is taught as the maid, uh the lady, and then it's Sheena again and it's 
the Lady Toth, and it's like, I don't understand why it keeps changing the name. Yeah. And it talks, we have another character who come to the prince. He's a, he's a git. But he's the Prince of Evan all the way through. Yeah. But it's like, it's not just the prince, it never becomes the prince. Yeah. So I just find that interesting. Yeah. And uh, they've got a would-be assassin as well, who they're torturing, Cyberdyne. Is torturing him. Well, he's the one who, uh, yeah, with the heightened senses, yeah, who's admitted that Sheena was his target. Yeah, they're giving him a damn good torture. They're discussing probably impaling him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of general stuff. But again, lots of Dune comparisons there in this culture of assassinations and torture and dr- drugs and training that heighten awareness and heighten senses and everything else. But it's it's all good stuff. I must say, I like it. I like all the world building. Yeah. It's very good and all the intrigue. And then the matriarch talks to Dine and asks how Sheena has taken it, learning that she was the intended victim. And I think at this point she's wanting to toughen her up, but she didn't want to tell her herself, so got Dine to do it. If you like the kind of stuff that goes on in Dune, all of the intrigue, all the assassinations, all of that flavour, this is like the one shit book version of Dune. And actually, we, have, we haven't said that this podcast is another episode of Is This a One-Shit Book? But actually, this is a pretty quick read, and this could qualify as a one-shit book. There are other bits as well. It says, She felt a chill run down her spine. The great houses had wealth and power, and their influence could reach far. In the struggle for the succession, who could consider themselves safe? So again, very Dune-ish. Yeah, very Dune-ish. Of course, they're also talking about, you know, heading up to the storms because that's ultimately where she wants to go. And it says, prior to the storm, we will go north to a place where the coast swings east toward the cold and dark of the night hemisphere. There stands a tremendous barrier, a mountain range fretted and carved by endless winds, worn by the passage of time. Hard stone remains while soft has been weathered away. Buried deep in the rock, and masses of crystals which respond in a wide range of harmonics to pressure and vibration. In effect, the range is the greatest sounding board ever imagined. When the winds blow during the storm, the results are... interesting. Mm. So there's something strange in the mountains, and there's something strange about these storms. So next, we go back to Dumarest who's got some work on a boat. <laughs> yeah, they've got, like, the worst <laughs> job possible. What is this job? Well, Megan looks after his clothes, whilst he's... I don't think Megan would probably be able to row himself. No, he's too weak, isn't he? So they've got, they're going out to sea to try and get... I don't know what quite what these creatures are, but yeah. the food... Yeah. They're Essentially, not they're kind of going whaling, mm. sort of space whaling. I think they're more dangerous than a whale, though. Yeah, and it, and it, and it doesn't go very well, either. <laughs> One of the guys who's out to try and catch the food, Carl. Poor Carl. Yeah. Is he put out the net and he has hold of the rope, but then something goes wrong. Dumeris reacts very quickly and cuts the rope. Yeah. And everybody sort of shouts because they need the rope, and what he did was very bad. Yeah. <laughs> So Cal jumps in yeah. to retrieve the, the rope. Apart from the skipper, they're all, for the most part, weak, Yes. underfed. They don't really have the strength to do this task particularly efficiently. And he probably chose Dumeris because he, he can, because he's only just arrived on yeah. Gap. They get into trouble. Dumeris cuts the cord from the harpoon because they're going to get dragged under. 
and Carl is so desperate. They're so desperate that this fish was a big one. He can't bear the idea of losing this big fish. Because I think they say it as well at some point that it would have fed all the people for three days. Yeah. So they're obviously really hungry. Yeah. And it says, A thin red film darkened the surface. A thin something trailed across it and Carl shouted his recognition. The rope! He dived before anyone could stop him. He plunged smoothly beneath the waves in rows, swimming, heading towards the thin strand of rope. He grabbed it, turned, began to swim back to the boat. He reached it, clawed at the gunwale and began to heave himself aboard. He couldn't make it and clung gasping to the rough wood. Dumeres reached the clinging man, clamped his hands around Carl's upper arm and adjusted his weight for the upward pull. Thanks, said Carl. I guess... He broke off, a peculiar expression on his face. It lasted for about three seconds. Then he began to scream. Dumeres realised why when he dragged the man into the boat. Both his legs had been severed above the knees. The working in was strange. There was a booming rhythm with a repetitive beat and a liquid sucking gurgle that they'd never heard before. The eddy current seemed to be working, for he could feel heat on his body, but his mouth was filled with an alien taste, and the gritty sensation beneath his body was something outside of his experience. But the light was the same. Too bright. The light was always too bright. He rolled and was immediately awake. He wasn't in a box. He wasn't in a ship which had just ended its passage. He lay on a beach of gritty sand with a sun of ruby glare over the water which rolled and thundered on the sloping shore. He rolled again so he was face downward and rose to all fours. Immediately he was violently sick. He backed like a dog from a suspicious odour and felt wetness beneath his hand. It was a pool of water left by the receding tide and he washed his face and mouth in the saline liquid. Only when he had swallowed a little did he realise that he burned with thirst. So... Essentially, the boat is lost. Yeah. Doomeress is the only survivor. It's a complete disaster. Because after they cut off Cal's legs, obviously the water was full of blood. Yeah. And it just drove all of these creatures, and they wanted more. Yeah. How he survived is beyond me. Because he's got a pawn tash, <laughs> I reckon. Well, he doesn't really know, does he? He just no. wakes up on the beach. No. And nobody else... Nobody else has survived. He spends ages trying desperately to get up the cliff. Yeah. He can't get up the cliff. He's weak. And eventually, after hours and hours and hours of trying, he collapses. And after a long while, it says, Megan found him. And Megan says, I saw what happened. At least I saw the boat capsizing all of you flung into the sea. I don't know the details. But yes, the blood attracted the big ones. Maybe the one you'd harpooned. They came in close to shore quite a bit, especially before a storm. And essentially there was a feeding frenzy. And it's pure luck. Doomerest got away with it. Yeah, but then nobody wanted to hire him. He's bad luck. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So Doomerest is like persona non grata when it comes to anybody handing out jobs from this point because he's he's just bad news. Well, nobody wants him on a boat anyway. No, no, true. Right, I'm just going to open up my next beer. So I am going now, I'm going Aranjiboom. Now that takes me back. It takes me back as well. This is uh, a favourite from our early 20s when there was a beer off round the corner from us. Back in the days, and it, it's it's amazing to think that things were like this, but that was during a period of time. And I don't know if you had this in Grimsby, or you were probably living in Bradford by this point, but there were two off-licences on Spring Bank in Hull. And crime was so bad, they both ended up where, when you walked in... It was basically Perspex walls, and you walked into a Perspex booth, and you could see everything that was available to buy, but you had to go to the till and ask for it, and it would be handed 
through a hatch. I'd never come across that. Yeah, both beer offs on Springbank were like this. And I can remember going to Liverpool to visit someone who was at university and it was the same there. The crime was so bad that you were isolated in a perspex hatch and only three customers were allowed in at a time and you had to ask for the beer and it was passed through a hatch. Wow. Yeah, it's really really amazing to think back that, that it was like that down Springbank. How long did it last? Can you remember? Only a few years, I think. I, th- I think this was towards the end of John Major's conservative government when when things were pretty ropey for poor people. I mean, we're heading back in that direction again now, aren't we? Mm. Let's keep politics out of it. No politics. No politics. Boo. Boo, Tory Britain. Um, but yeah, so, um, but it was great because Irangiboom was eight cans for a fiver. And I mean, this is the first kind of Irangiboom I've had in a long time, I must say. So I was really, really pleased to see it. I have to point out, though, that it's not eight cans for a fiver anymore. It's four cans for five ninety nine. Well, you know, that's progress, isn't it? Well, considering how many years ago you're talking. Mm. And one of my favourite memories of Aranjaboom is we all went down to London for a New Year's Eve party at Neil's house. And Neil, I think was Lars living with him at the time, I can't remember, but he was living in what was an old gate lodge in Highgate. Yeah, Highgate. And it's a really nice place, and Highgate's a really expensive part of London, but there was a few of them living in this, what was a converted gatehouse. We hired a van, and Smithy drove, white van man, driving us <laughs> in our white van down to London. And he sat up front, and we all got in the back, and we all got a case of Aranjaboom each, which was 24 cans, so it was like 15 quid each per person. We each had a case of Aranjaboom, and we drove down, and who was in the back? There was me, there was Dave Ride, there was Yaki. Who else was there? I can't remember. Was Fairthy with us? I can't remember. But anyway, we drank most of our Aranjaboom before we got there on the drive, the three, and a, three, three and a half hour white van man drive down to London. When we got there, Smithy opened the doors and we all just fell out, absolutely rat assed. Just cans and detritus and crisp oh. packets all over the place. I think I fell asleep at half past ten that night. <laughs> I don't think I even made it to midnight. I but bet Smithy was pleased. Stevie Mack. That's who else was there, Stevie Mack. So uh, Smithy was absolutely incensed. I don't blame Because him. he'd driven all the way down and we just sat in the back of the van and got rat assed and he felt like he'd really lost out and he was way behind. Yeah, so Smithy wasn't happy. But you know what? We had a really good time. <laughs> and God bless you, Aranjaboom. Let's find out if you're any good. I'll, my my chief hope is that it's better than Red Stripe. It is better than Red Stripe. It's actually pretty good. Ah, oh, good. Yeah, so Dutch Lager, 5%, brewed with passion. In a tribute to the House of Orange, the orange tree crest, symbolising the family tree of the Dutch royal family, Orange Nassau, was introduced and the Aranjaboom brand was born. Aranjaboom is one of Holland's oldest brands. Since we started shipping beer... In 1889, to almost every corner of the world, Aranjaboom has been appreciated for its refreshing, outstanding quality. Whereas I just remember Aranjaboom being cheap, strong lager. <laughs> yeah, it was like, uh, it was it was our pre-stellar battle lager. Right. Yeah, and oh, yeah, God bless you, Aranjaboom. This is very nice. Hmm. Well, that's good. Brings back memories. Right, so, where are we in the grand Winds of Gath saga? We have... A ship that's just landed with the Prince of Amen. Amen. Oh, that guy. Boo. There's also three monks of the Universal Brotherhood. Ah, yes, the monks. Two musicians, an artist, four poets and an entrepreneur. Yes. They all travelled in the high and travelled low 
was a man, a withered crone and a fawn. Yeah. And he came staggering from the ship, bowed beneath the weight of a fibroid box as large as himself. He was grotesquely thin, and his eyes burned like coals from the gaunt pallor of his face. Ribs showed prominent against the flesh of his chest, bare beneath the ragged shirt. The rest of his clothing matched the shirt. He was a shambling, scarecrow of a man. Gath! he cried out and fell to the seared dirt of the field, pressing his cheek against the soil. The box which he carried, by means of a strap over his shoulder, gave him the appearance of a monstrous beetle. Gath! His companions ignored him. The tourist looked and saw nothing of interest. All travellers were mad. The handler stood at the door of his ship and spat after his late charges. Gath! yelled the man again. He tried to rise, but the weight of the box pressed him to the ground. Eel-like, he wriggled from beneath, slipping the strap from his shoulders, kneeling by the box. He patted it, crooning inarticulate sounds. Saliva dribbled from his mouth and wet his chin. Mad, said Megan positively. Insane. In trouble. Dumeris was interested. Megan shrugged. Turns out to be quite an important character, this dude with the box. Sam. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Uh, again, like a, another little connection. It reminds me a little bit of Django. The original Django, because Django drags a coffin around in the Wild West. But in, in the case of Django, it turns out he's got a, a Gatling gun in it. Yeah, yeah this is a bit different. This is Dead sl- wife. This is slightly different. Yeah, dead wife. Dead wife. So he's uh, Sime. They they actually offer to help, and Doomrest is like, you know, we we don't need no pay. We'll help you carry your uh, six foot long shaped like a coffin box. Megan grunted as he felt the weight. What's in here? Lead. Just some things, said Sime. He looked anxious. Just carry it from the field. I'll be able to manage it after I rest a while. Just carry it from the field. And then Megan twists his ankle. Gets nicely out of uh, out <laughs> carrying the box. But he's been there a year. He's very. He is pretty weak. But Dumrest is just a really helpful guy, isn't yeah. he? He just wants to help anyone. Yeah. So we're introduced, aren't we, to... We've, we've got Piers and the Brotherhood, which we find out a little bit about. We've got Prince Emmendon and the guy with his dead wife in a box. Although we don't know it's his dead wife just yet. Or do we? Yeah, the crone laughed and told him that that's uh, Dime's dead wife in the right. box. Because he says, be careful, you'll hurt... And then he stops. Yes. And she laughed and said that. So we're also introduced to the monks, the Universal Brotherhood. And what's their game? It's really hard to tell. They have such a a low role in all this. Yeah. There's a part of me waiting for something a bit sinister. Yeah. But they just seem to be wanting to help people, listening to confessions. Yeah. Helping the people on Gath. By feeding them, because yeah. after confession they get the wafer. Yeah. So that's probably the only bit of nutrients that a lot of them get. Yeah. And it also, I think it's got some chemicals in them yeah. that give them this sense of well-being. That's right. So that they're actually genuinely doing good, mm. the Brotherhood, rather than just being weird and sinister. Yeah. At first you feel like they're weird and sinister, but they're not. They're actually doing good, and they are helping people. Yeah. So we've got Brother Benedict, because we're introduced to someone else. Brother Eli. We? Oh, Piers Quentin, the resident factor of Gath. Yes. He just feels like a, an over-rich mayor who's just lying in his own pockets. Yeah. He's, he's another dickhead, isn't he? Yep. Piers and the Prince of Emmendon are actually they're, they're kind of hand-in-hand hand later on as well, aren't they? And they're just a pair of dickheads. So there's Brother Benedict, 
obviously brother Angelo's in charge and there's a brother Eli and brother Eli keeps going to Piers Quentin I keep calling it him the bear but the yeah. fa- the resident factor and I think sometimes Piers gets a bit annoyed with him mm. because he's very honest with him and I think basically he says that you're a bit selfish yeah but he, he uh, brother Eli was asking him if he was troubled mm. and I think he fa- he gets stressed by his role yeah and he drinks a lot Mm. And he knows that Brother Eli find, is really annoyed with it and keeps watching him when he's drinking. Yeah. And he put he keeps putting his cup down, but then he'll pick it up again. I think he's a little bit of an alcoholic. Yeah, and Eli and Cyberdyne have a peculiar meet-up and exchange. It says, Eli met Dine as he left the residence quarters. The monk stiffened as he saw the cyber. Both felt the reaction of strange cats to each other. The Universal Brotherhood had no trust for the cyclone. The cybers had no love for the monks. They looked at each other, dining in rich scarlet, Eli in his drab homespun. Each one could feel no emotion. The other dealt with little else. A fine day, brother, said Eli gently. The silence once broken, Dine could not ignore the monk. It would be illogical to arouse irritation. Cybers made no enemy and tried to make everyone their friend. It is always day on Gath, he said in his soft modulation, the trained voice which contained no irritant factors. You have just arrived. On the last ship to reach this world before the storm. Eli sensed the other's dislike as a dog would send anger or fear. You were alone? I serve the matriarch of Kund. Naturally. Eli steps to one side. I must not detain you, brother. Go in peace. Dine bowed, a slight, almost imperceptible inclination of his head, then swept on his way. Two of his retinue guarded his private quarters, young, sternly moulded men, novitiates to the cyclone. Officially, his personal attendants. Turtle seal, ordered Dine. Even command did not harden his voice. There was no need of oral emphasis. No interruption of any kind, for any reason. Inside his quarters he rested supine on a narrow couch. Touching the bracelet locked about his left wrist, he stepped up the power. The device ensured that no one could ever spy on a cyber. No scanner or electronic ear could focus in his vicinity. It was a precaution. Nothing more. Relaxing, he closed his eyes and concentrated on the Samachazi formulae. Gradually, he lost the sense of taste, smell, touch and hearing. Had he opened his eyes, he would have been blind. Locked in the womb of his skull, his brain ceased to be irritated by external stimuli. It became a thing of pure intellect, its reasoning awareness, its only thread of life. Only then did the grafted Hermacon elements become active. Rapport soon followed. Dine became really alive. Each cyber had a different experience. For him, it was as if every door in the universe had opened to let in the shining light of truth. He was a living part of an organism which stretched across space in countless crystalline droplets, each glowing with intelligence. Filaments connected one to the other, so that it was as if he saw dew-scattered webs stretching to infinity, saw it, and was a part of it. Was it while it was himself sharing yet earning the tremendous gestalt of minds? At the centre of the web was the headquarters of the cyclone, buried beneath miles of rock, deep in the heart of a lonely planet. The central intelligence absorbed his knowledge as a sponge would suck the water from a pond. There was no verbal communication, only mental communion in the form of words. Quick, almost instantaneous, organic transmission against which even supra-radio was the merest crawl. Verification received an anticipated development of situation on Gath. Continue was directed. That was all. The rest was sheer mental intoxication.
So it's like, hey ho, yeah. what's he up to? What's he up to? And we now know that the the Cyclans basically have like mental internet system spanning, almost interplanetary, interstellar mental tinterwebs. So they've got these grafted homicron yeah. elements, yeah. and when they sit and go into this fugue-like state, they be, they come active and they can all communicate. Yeah. And he's communicating back whatever his directives are. So it's like, you're not as as simple as you say. You're yeah. not as just helpful and taking no sides. You, yep. you're, you've got another agenda. Yeah. And don't you think it's interesting that he has no emotions, he's a cyclone, nobody seems to like him. Hmm. Now, whether it's because he is part robot, but the monks who want to help everybody, Brother Eli didn't like him, did he? No. And we know that Cena didn't like him, and I think he works for matriarch and i think he's very useful to her in what he knows and does yeah but a lot of people just don't seem to like him yeah meanwhile doomarest and megan are fed up of eating grass <laughs> being poor it's a strange one isn't it sat chewing grass sat chewing grass and uh, they have been fed a little bit by the uh, by the monks, and Megan's quite fond of the monks because, of course, I think he's been living off them for quite a while. Dumares refused to go. It was just Megan who got his got fed. Meanwhile, Prince um, the Prince of Emined is bored and has taken steps to relieve his boredom. So basically, is sitting there with a languid yawn, and he's decided to put up some sport, and he's offering uh, rewards to any of the travellers. This is the other thing, interesting thing about the Traveller role-playing game. The people who travel low passage are just referred to as travellers. So, sorry, yeah, just bring that up again. And what's he offering so people will fight his... A uh, hundred units to fight. To fight Moidor. <laughs> when, when they met, it was Moidor. But didn't he also offer a passage as well to the winner? If yeah. someone could beat his champion. Yeah. This started after he'd spotted uh, the lady Cena. Yeah. And he got the hots for her. He's got the hots for her. So he's a babe. Yeah, so he wanted to impress her. Wants to impress her by setting up a gladiatorial contest. Yeah. And nobody's up for it. So it's, it's, it's 100 units to fight Moidor, his champion. Yeah, Moidor. Yeah, yeah, you say nobody's up for it. He's already just killed two people. Oh, has he killed people already? Yeah, yeah. He's got two there dead. Oh, right. Okay. But they want another one. Because he wants to try and... Uh, his his man, is it Chowder? It's like, oh, I think Crowder. She, Crowder. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's really up for it. She likes a bit of blood and gore. Yeah. I think we should try and get another fight and it might make her all hot for you. Yeah. So that's why the offer this has gone up to like 100 units and, yeah. the, and a passage. Yeah. So he says, a traveller's passage to anyone who can win a single fall, shouts Crowder. High travel to anyone who can kill. Doomrest swayed forward. Oh, Megan clutched at his arm. Has that grass sent you crazy? You wouldn't stand a chance against an animal like that. Crowder had noticed the slight movement. He came closer, smiling, repeating the offer and adding a little more bait. A passage for a single fall. High travel if you kill. A hundred units if you try. Coins shone hypnotically in his hand. His smile widened as Doomrest stepped forward. You? Yes. Do you want to strip? Oil? Prepare yourself? No. Doomrest was curt. 
Give me the money. A moment. Would you prefer to fight armed? Knives, perhaps? As I am. Dumeris held out his hand. Give me the money. Crowd shrugged and passed over the coins. Dumeris threw them to Megan, rubbed his hands on the sides of his shirt, then stepped towards the fighter. Mordor smiled. He was a beautiful animal, and he knew it. He postured, flexing his muscles so the sun gleamed on lumps and ridges of tissue, throwing shadows into the hollows and concave places. He had spent his life developing his body. He looked indestructible. I have a picture of Vern, hasn't he? I have a picture of a Roman gladiator at yeah, this point. Yeah, all oiled up. Yes. Yeah. Come, he smiled as Doomrest stepped forward. Come into my arms, my brave one. Feel my embrace and die. His voice was a little slurred, his smile and gesture a little slow. His eyes needed time to change focus. Quick time still lingered in his blood and compressed the passing seconds. His reflexes were not operating at their normal speed, but he was still dangerous. Uh, another bit that was said just before is that before he went up to accept it, he was swaying with hunger. Yeah. So he's already at that stage. I know we'd said he was hungry, but yeah. he was swaying. Yeah. So Dumeras is swaying with hunger, but he's spotted a weakness in Moidor that he's been using quick time and he's, uh, he's not quite as sharp and he's overconfident. So Dumerest is desperate, hungry. Moidor is arrogant, juiced up. He's not entirely prepared for how dirty Dumerest fights. Well, the thing is, he knows he's good. Yeah. That's why he's the prince's champion. Yeah. Yeah, it's great, because Doomrest just starts off by kicking him in the knee and knackering his knee. I think he broke it. Yeah. Later on, I think we learn. Yeah. But there was nothing that said you have to fight clean. No, that's and right. I, and I think that's how Doomrest... Because he's not a very vain man, and he's not like all high on all the praise. It's like, no one said I had to fight clean. Yeah. I wanted to win and not die. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually really cool. Doomrest all the way through, he knows he's very, very close to trouble. But he just really just keeps concentrating on the knee. He attacks the knee repeatedly and he basically fucks him up. (laughs) I mean, Moida did get him a couple of times. He does. But he managed to get out. Yeah. Like you say, by kicking the knee again. Yeah. And it does him in, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, He gets on his back, he pulls up his chin and he breaks his neck like a champion. Yeah. Only to then collapse. Only to then collapse out of, uh, out of fear, pain and hunger. He then awakens in the tents of the matriarch and he's been tended by her personal physician yep. and she's been healing him and he realises he's been fed and bathed and wonders why. Get some smart new togs. Yeah, and it turns out that she was pleased with him to see the prince's fighter get yeah. killed. So he has no memory at all after the kill because he'd gone into metabolic shock. Yeah. And the physician explains that she's healed him in slow time. Yeah. The actual time it's taken him to heal is four hours, but it's like he's been treated for a week. Yeah. So he's he's a lot better than he should have been. Then she's just talking to him because she's testing his bloods and doing all the general obs and asks where, his, uh, where he was born because some of his results were a bit strange. And he said, Earth. And for some reason, this angered her. Yeah. Because of, like you were saying earlier, that to them, to her and to a lot of others, Earth doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, He's asked to wait there, and then he's shown into a room where the maid comes to talk to him. Just wants to know about why he fought as he did. Yeah. 
She pours him wine, which she doesn't drink herself. And then he tells her of a story of a man on quail that he knew. Yeah. And the woman he was with wanted a bit of fun, so accused him of rape and said that he... That's right, because of the ring she was wearing, it reminded him of that. And within the ring, this woman had held some sort of poison. Mm. And so this guy was accused of rape and ended up having his eyelids taken off and his tongue and his manhood and mm. just for her amusement. So Dumarest is making it known to the maid that, do you know what? You're not drinking, I'm not drinking because yeah. I don't know what you're going to do to me. Yeah. So they're both quite guarded, really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that bit where he tells the, the physician where he's from, she says, what's the name of your native world? He says, Earth. So she frowned, her lips thinned with anger. Please not jest, I am serious. Many races so call the substance of their planet as they call it dirt or soil. What is the name of your primary? Sol. This is ridiculous. She rose to her feet, insulted. I ask you to name your son, and you reply with a word meaning exactly the same. Son. What son? The son. He rose and smiled down at her, amused by her anger. I assure you, I'm telling the truth. So that's that um, again that thing that popped up in a, a two thousand AD story, Earth or Dirt or whatever. Mm. Yeah, that's very cool. So he's now met the uh, the matriarch of Kund, Lady Cena. She's quite impressed with him. And then we find out. So after he told this story, this this lovely wine that she got him, even though she still didn't drink her own, he knocked his over. At which point we go to the matriarch who is naughtily watching him in a mirror, which reminds me. Of of Snow White yeah, and the Evil Queen. So she's watching them through this mirror and she notices afterwards that Dumares pours himself more wine and then he's happy to drink it. Yeah. So he does think that she's poisoned it and then she's also in the room with Dine. And then there's an assassination attempt. Yes. Came on a blare of shimmering wings, a thin finger-long body tipped with triangular jaws strong enough to shear through metal to penetrate the toughest hide. It ripped through the plastic of the room, poised for a moment in the corner, then swept toward where the couple sat. Doomrest saw it barely in time. The Lady Cena was very close, her perfume an enticing scent in his nostrils, the warm white velvet of her flesh radiating its feminine heat. She was attentive and had a trick of staring into his face as if seeing there something special to herself. Cynicism kept him detached. Such a woman would be sated with empty flattery and the easy conquest of desirous males. She was only amusing herself, unable to resist the challenge of his maleness, <laughs> playing an age-old game with tired indifference. So he told himself and managed to negate her charms. <laughs> Whereas I think she's just quite a naive young woman. She is, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think his fear is, once again, it's that situation of being in that poor position and, and the the memory he has of of the guy being toyed with mm. by uh, a wealthy, powerful woman has put him absolutely on his guard. There's very much a class thing, isn't there? Yeah. That you're just there for the amusement of the rich. Yeah, but he, he does the right thing. He saves a life. He picks up a chair, takes down the assassin beast, which is a figria. The thing hit the seat, drilled through, scored deep groove across the backrest and careened off the metal fabric of his shirt. Wings a tattered ruin. It thrashed on the carpet and then scuttled forward on multiple legs. Dumeres crushed it beneath the heel of his boot. So the assassination attempt fails. But this is where I was like, this is so Dune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, lots of similarities. The uh, the physician, she stoops, picks up the crushed body in a pair of forceps and examines it through a glass. 
A female gravid searching for a host. Her lips tightened. A human is not its natural host. That means... It was primed, said Doomrest harshly. He looked down at his hands. They were trembling a little from reaction. He remembered the tug at his hair. The scar close to his hand. Death had come twice, very close. It was primed, he repeated. We all know what that means. He looked at the beauty of the girl and wondered who wanted her dead. Gloria was tormented by the same thought. A figria was an assassin's weapon. Primed with the scent of the victim, it would unerringly seek out the target to use as its host. Like a bullet, it would smash through the skin into the flesh beneath to vomit forth a gush of tiny eggs. Swept by the bloodstream, they would scatter throughout the body to hatch and grow there, too numerous for surgical removal, too tough for chemical destruction. They would bring an inevitable and horrifying end. Yeah, that did sound pretty gruesome, I yeah. have to say. Bit like a facehugger. Oh. Mm. Never thought of that. Yeah, well, Dan O'Bannon was a was a big sci-fi and fantasy fan, so you never know. Could have been a tiny seed of an influence there on Dan O'Bannon uh, with the whole face of a situation. Yeah, because the other bit is definitely doing this, this fast metallic creature that's trying to that's been primed specifically. Yeah, so they know the figure here was primed, and now they need to know how the assassin obtained Lady Cena's scent. And uh, yeah, the matriarch of Kund is pretty pissed off about this. But then there's also discussion that actually was it sent for Doomarest? Mm. Is it the prince getting revenge for right. Doomarest killing? Because could have been taken from Moidor. Yeah, for mm. killing his champion. Mm. He won't have been happy to be made to look a fool. Yeah, and Prince Emined was known to be a vengeful man. Mm. Yeah. But the problem with the matriarch, who's been around many years, she felt it was just too neat. It was just so simple. I suppose the other worry is that if it was for Cena, was it treachery within her own people? Mm. And I know she doesn't want to go there, hoping that all of her guards and those closest to her are loyal. So because of this, she decided to leave early. And she calls up her head of guard, who says, For the North, my lady. Yeah. For the North. Yeah. Has to be the North. Has to be the North. <laughs> so then we go back to Piers. Because she's decided to leave early because of all this attempts on lives going on, she decides to go head out to mm-hmm. go to see the storm early. And because of this, then Pierce is having... Everybody wants to go early. And meanwhile, the uh, the Brotherhood are trying to wrangle with Piers to uh, improve the, the church conditions. Eli says, Perhaps you underestimate the power of the Brotherhood, said the monk evenly. It is not beyond speculation that the travellers might take a hand in their own destiny. Who then would tend the field, clear the path, act as bearers for the tourists who come to Gath? A union? The factor made no secret of his disgust. Are you threatening me with a union? A man of your calling to deal in a thing so vile? By the pattern on your face, I see that you belong to a guild, said the monk sharply. What else is that but a union of people engaged in serving their common end? He had expected an outburst of rage, but the factor surprised him. Quentin could see no relationship between the professional guild of which he was a member and a union of unspecialised types, the thought of which aroused only disgust. The professional men had ethics. The others did not. If anything, he was amused by the old man's analogy. Piers is effectively sees himself as an entrepreneur who just deals with similar people in order to improve conditions, but he's absolutely disgusted at the idea of a union. But the Brotherhood are threatening him with this. Quite well, successfully. I think Eli sees exactly what sort of a man he is. Yeah. What he's done is these rafts, he's taken the motors out, and he, in his head, it's to give travellers work so they can earn money yes. to be able to get off the planet. But as he said, 
you set the wages, you set the, the price of the food and the drink, so everything you give them from wages, you know you're going to get back. Yep. Basically, you're a shyster. Yeah. And I don't think Piers likes hearing that. No, and the monk actually says, uh, you know, he says essentially you're riding a tiger. Yeah. So Piers looked at his hand. It was trembling with memories of nightmare sleep. The dream was always the same. Himself lying crushed and bleeding beneath the boots of a ravening mob. <laughs> it could happen at any time. More so during the period of storm, when nerves jerked to electric tension, and there was nothing between him and the mob but a handful of guards. He decides to adjust his fees with with the threat of uh, of union unrest. Yeah, and he feels like he's been so good for doing it. Yeah. The Brotherhood negotiate uh, an adjustment of the fees charged to the tourists, assisting to provide and distribute natural food amongst the travellers, medical care, and the, and the Brotherhood... <laughs> will actually sup- supply it all. So there's a nice bit of um, play from the Brotherhood there. The The travellers will get what they need, but the Brotherhood will get the resources to deliver it. So there's a little bit of uh, little bit of capitalism going on on the hands of the Brotherhood. And the other thing Eli does as well is talk about, oh, so the prize that Dumares won, you've got it. Yeah. So what happens if he dies? Yeah. So he's very sharp, his brother Eli, which really annoys uh, the factor uh, appears. Yeah. I believe now the journey up the mountain Yes. has begun. Obviously the prince is really pissed because the matriarch has gone early yep. and he doesn't know why. Yep. So he feels like she's perhaps got some insider knowledge. Yeah. So his first Bit thing of a race is... going on. Yeah. So his thing is to, right, move, move, move. Megan gets work carrying the raft. Yeah, he's struggling Megan though, isn't he? Yeah. Well, Damaris said he would have paid for him yeah. from all his winnings, but Pride has Megan wanting to pay his own way. Yeah, and Crowther's using the whip on the travellers. Yeah, Crowther's a massive dickhead. Crowther's a huge dickhead. Dumaris is getting more and more irritated by these fuckers well, exploiting the, the poor. Yeah, the prince just wants to get ahead. He doesn't give a shit about these men, yeah. so he's whipping them to yeah. get ahead. As they're going, though... There is another attempt on Dumarest's life. So while Dumarest is uh, mulling over um, the situation and getting more and more irritated by the fact that they're being whipped by an overseer effectively, he almost dies beneath the blaze of a laser. It says, Luck saved him. A tufted root twisted beneath his foot and threw him to one side away from the blast of energy which came from behind. Common sense kept him alive. He continued to fall, letting his body grow limp, hitting the ground face down, pressing the left side of his head against the grass so its supposed injury was hidden, masking the right side with an upflung arm. He remained motionless, not moving even when the whisper of footsteps came very close. They stopped, too far away for him to reach, and he held his breath. The scent of the grass was in his nostrils, the damp odour of the ground. The tingling between his shoulders grew almost unbearable, but he knew that to move was to die. The assailant was watching, reluctant perhaps to attract attention with a second shot, but certain to fire again in case of doubt. Then, after an eternity, the footsteps rustled away. Mmm, mystery attempt on Doomrest's life. Yeah, I mean, after, because he'd gone to speak to Megan, it shows how caring he is. He put salve on his whipped marks and his sore shoulders so that he could carry on. Although he did tell him not to do it anymore. Yeah. 
but he just he went for a walk and he, he wondered where the guards were going. Yeah. And he saw that some of the guards from the matriarch had gone hunting. Yeah. And that's when he nearly got killed. Yeah. What's going on with the physician and Dine? They're they're engaging in vivisection. So these creatures, which people find really difficult to catch, and I think earlier on, Megan had said the only way you can catch them is with a net and a, a sonic gun. But a lot of the travellers had tried to catch these creatures, but had been unsuccessful. But the guards have been catching them, and yeah. now we see that the physician Melga is dissecting them and... Diane is watching her. I think they've noticed that these creatures have no auditory system. And the big question is, how do they survive without no form of hearing? Yeah. So I think she has dissected quite a few, but she's always put them to sleep first. Yeah. And Diane was like, why are you doing that? It might impair the tests. And she said, made it clear that it doesn't. And they do pick up on the anxiety and the worry that if they were to do the test whilst they were still conscious, yeah. the the results would be worse. And she just feels that he's quite a, a cruel yeah. creature, really. So there's something of a mystery, these creatures. I think she had her answer quite early on, but she's just done lots more tests just to prove her theory. And it's that these creatures are telepathic, mm. which is a huge, huge discovery. Dan released the creature. It jumped from the raft and was immediately lost in the undergrowth. He could only have sensed my thoughts, not actual words, of course. He has no language or means of verbal communication, so could not have thought in a verbal sense. It sensed my intention. It must be very sensitive. Gloria nodded. Her forehead creased with thought. Her heart beat into a rising excitement. Telepathy was not an unknown talent in the cluster of worlds which should known the foot of man, but it was, at best, an unpredictable thing spawned by sport mutations and wholly unreliable. If these creatures are compensated for their lack of hearing by developing a telepathic ability, then they were unique. Unique because they were flesh and blood, and physiologically akin to the human race. So this is like a big discovery, a, yeah. a race of psychic creatures. And if they're akin to the human race, then can they use it to increase human functioning? Yeah, there's obviously some real value in this world mm. we're starting to understand more and more now why the matriarch is so interested in this world and then jumerus goes for a walk with cena and he talks to her about earth and how he escaped when he was a boy there was a captain on a ship who helped him get out and that might be a part of why he chose the life he, he did but also he found as he grew up that Nobody talked about Earth. Nobody knew where it was or anything. Yeah. And I think he's actually just trying to get back there. For some reason, he decided to share this, which opens up another possibility. I know you say that there's a lot more books after this, so maybe this is something that goes on in yeah. future. 33 or 34 more books. Does he ever get to Earth? Who knows? We've got a lot of books to read before we find out. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So, meanwhile, the prince is being a bored, spoilt dickhead, and Crowther is continually being a, a shifty bugger, uh, a naughty, naughty shifty bugger, and they're still both obsessing over the, over the fact that surely Cena must love bloodshed, but he's getting a bit pissed off that Cena is spending all of her time with Doomrest, and the fact that the guards of the matriarch are tender at all times. So they're just still trying to cook up some kind of way of, of getting to Cena, because, really, the prince just needs... 
He really needs to get laid. And Crowder blatantly lies to him, yeah. saying that when Jumaris killed Moida, yeah. she was wet for it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's not what he actually said. But <laughs> he, he lied saying that she was turned on by the, the murder and the fighting and the bloodshed. Yeah. So which instantly, you know, made the prince, his ears prick up, because he's obviously quite an evil little shit, isn't Oh, yeah. And, and Crowder's saying, the matriarch could hardly object to you as a husband for our ward. A monk of the Brotherhood could tie the knot. His chuckle was a suggestive leer. A knot which you could cut whenever you so decided, my lord. That goes without question. The prince nodded, toying with the suggestion, seeing beyond the apparent simplicity of the courtier's plan. Yeah, it was an intriguing concept. The girl was attractive, aligned to wealth. It'd be a good match. It would kill the monotony of the homeward flight, if nothing else, and give him the aura of responsibility of the lack of which his ministers so deplored. At worst, he could always pose as a saviour and gain her confidence via the path of blood. Crowder's blood, naturally. The secret of Gath was worth a dozen such as he. The prince is even thinking, well, you know, maybe I could encourage Crowder to get up to date tricks. I'll just kill him and be the saviour. He's, he's just a spoilt prick. He really is. Mm. And then they get to the mountains. They do. So Megan totally disregarded Jumarest for his pride again and carried on being a, a bearer of the raft. Yep. And when they reached the mountains, he suggested that they stop. The prince totally disagreed and and then said he would not pay him as he believed he, he had suggested to stop there due to being whipped so he, he felt he couldn't walk any further yeah. and it wasn't the best place to stop. Yeah. They carry on. There's quite a lot going on now, isn't there? Cyberdyne is getting a hard-on for grafting organs from these creatures, so he's getting really, really, really super excited about coupling these organs with the homicon elements that he would be truly omniscient. Also, the matriarch, her thoughts on the telepathic principles of the local animals as well, and she feels that they need to do this work so that she would feel safe. Yeah. And I suppose there is part of the whole system and the planets is that all these assassination attempts... So if you knew somebody was coming for you, obviously you would feel a lot safer. Meanwhile, Doomarest is hanging out with Cena still. One of the monks comes and asks for him, and they found Megan in a poor state. Megan lay supine on a couch of uprooted grass, gathered in one corner of the portable church. He wore no shirt, and his back was marked with long, livid welts. They had not been caused by a normal whip. Doomarest knelt to examine them. His face was hard as he stared at the monk in attendance. When? We found him a short while ago, close to the edge of the cliffs. He was scarcely conscious. He asked for you. Brother Angela tenderly applied salve to the welts. Dumeres knocked his hand aside. That stuff is useless. He's been beaten with a strag. He needs sedatives and neutralizers. I know, brother. The man was very calm. But we can only use what we have. It wasn't enough. The dried, flexible body of a sea serpent found in the oceans of strag carried a searingly painful nerve poison in its jagged scales. Its use was much favoured by overseers and the aristocracy for the punishment of slaves and underlings. Doomrest felt his muscles knot with rage as he looked at the thin shoulders and fleshless back of his friend. He sends them to the tents of the matriarch anyway, and gives them the money from his bonus money to get what he needs to, to treat Megan's terrible scars. And not only that, but the strag has been lashed across his eyes and could have caused permanent blindness, but it just missed his eyes. Mm. And Doomrest asked what happened. Crowder. The voice was a tormented whisper. 
The prince refused to pay me and said it was the price of failure. Crowder added to the price. A spasm contorted the sweating features. God, the pain. So I think uh, I think Crowder's cards are marked now. Oh, I think quite a few people's cards are marked now. Yeah. It's, it's all starting to come to something of a head. Crowder is just a bad one. Doomrest actually goes to see the prince. Yeah, because he couldn't get the drugs from the matriarch, yeah. so he had to go to the prince explaining what had happened. And the prince didn't know exactly what Crowder would do. Yeah. And agrees to give him the drugs that uh, Megan would need if, in return, Doomrest would help him him to be seen favourably in the eye of Cena. So he wants a way in because he's got the hots for her. So Doomerist totally lies and says, yeah, fine. And uh, he also promises Doomerist high passage. So Doomerist plays the game. And now we find out what's going on in the mountains. We find out what the storm is all about. Yes, and the storm is pretty severe. Yeah, and all sorts of things come to a head during the storm. So it kind of starts with the rain, which is so heavy that people drown in it. So people have to find shelter. And I know that Doomrest and Megan are with the monks in their church. But Doomrest is feeling quite hemmed in, mm-hmm. feels he needs to escape. And Megan tries to stop him, knowing that if he goes out there, he could end up dying because of he's he's witnessed the storms. Obviously, he's been there a year. But Doomerist hasn't. So eventually he does manage to get out. The first thing he finds is the boy who travelled with Simon the Crone dead. Yeah. The one they called the Fool. At first he thinks he's probably just drowned in it because he's face up. But then he notices a mark that implies that he's been hit with a syringe on his face. So it's definitely looking like it's uh, murder. And then what comes next is the air and the voices. So what people are supposed to hear is people who have died or people that people have killed. And he starts to hear the voice of an old friend. Is it Carson? Carson, yeah. He's, he, effectively, he's his agent. He, he hears the voice of the captain who rescued him from Earth. So it's, it's like a really kind of psychedelic, telepathic mindfuck storm yes so um doomress is going through this everybody up on that mountain is going through something very very similar Um, it ain't going well for the prince he's having a terrible time yeah yeah and then something happens he sees sime and the coffin he puts some mud in his ears to try and block it out and that's when he's attacked turns to see that it's the crone he wrenches the sliver of steel from her hand and manages to pull off her earmuffs and then she jumps from the cliff. So it's obviously her who killed the fool, the yeah. young boy. And he walks back and he sees Sime's coffin Yeah. just as the lid starts to rise. And then it's all over. Everything's fucked up. The rafts have all been torn from their moorings. Megan's all right. When he wakes up, his temple was swollen and sticky with congealed blood. And it's Megan who finds him. Apparently, it's one of the worst storms they've ever had. Yeah. It was mentioned a little bit earlier, which we did miss, is that the matriarch also heard the voice of her dead husband, Yeah. 80 years dead, and also of her child, which obviously we know she's she wasn't supposed to have children. Yeah, and that's what she wanted from all of this, isn't it? Yeah. She wanted some kind of closure before the end of a life and to think back and remember that the life she could have had had she not taken on that role but she's really happy 
So a lot of people in this and this horrendous storm have jumped to the deaths off yeah. the cliffs because they've been called from people they've murdered or have died, whereas she is really happy yeah. to have these memories, to be able to go back so far, because it's 80 years, I think, since her first husband died. Yeah. So she's pretty old. Yeah. But yes, it's it's a comfort for her. As I say, Doomrist has, has been found, unfortunately, he's okay. And they notice that only the matriarch and the princess tents have remained upright. Everything else has either blown over or been destroyed or blown over the cliffs to the sea. Yeah. And the prince and Crowder get quite poetic. And the prince is driven mad by it all. And Crowder whipped himself to death because he thought he was his own father. Yeah. So he whipped himself to death with that serpent whip thing. It's drag. Yeah. Deserved that, really. He so deserved it. Yeah. We go then to Dine, who's one of his retinue comes back with the air samples. Yeah. So it turns out he'd sent out two of his retinue. One was to get air samples, the other one was to get rock samples. And the retinue explained that he had the air samples, but they had no rock samples as the man had plunged to his death. Yeah, so, so the mountain doesn't give up its secrets easily. No. Does it? But Diane, being an unemotional git, we just thought, well, the air samples are much more important than the rocks. They would give us a lot more of an understanding of what these storms yeah. give up and what they entail. So he joined the matriarch and Cena, who seemed very relaxed and chilled, and he suggested that they leave straight away. She was like, do you know what? Let's just say for another bout of it. Yeah. I think she just wanted... One last period where she could hear her, yeah. her dead husband and yeah. child. Yeah, it's it's actually quite poignant. Yes, that. I really grew to like her and understand her more as she went on. So Diane has no choice but to listen to them, even though he wants off the planet. So Damaris and Megan went to where he was attacked and they find Syme's coffin and his very dead wife's corpse within it. But underneath it is a secret place. And when he opens up and finds this, he smells a scent that he's smelt before. Mm. And he's a bit perturbed what this could mean. So they went to the matriarch and told them of his concerns of Cena from the prince, who invited him in to sit and said that she was about to name her successor. And she did. She named her ward Cena. Damaris just said, but that girl is not your ward. And so the matriarch, having age on her side, was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. She wanted him to prove why Cena was the imposter. Yeah. So he told the story of the coffin and how when they first carried it, it was really heavy. Mm-hmm. But then on the last bit of the journey, Syme had insisted on carrying it himself. And when he'd f- and found this secret compartment and he could smell the perfume. And that's how he'd come to realise that Cena wasn't Cena; It was yeah. somebody else. So the girl was totally denying this, saying that he was, you know, he was just making all this up and yeah. she, it needed to be taken in. But then she attacked the matriarch and dined, killed the girl. So... What we find out is that whilst the storm had started, that like he had proven he'd been able to do, the prince or and or Crowder and Syme had yeah. snuck in, taken the girl, left the imposter, and 
made off with her. Yeah. And the worries was then was for her life. It's all gone very Columbo. It has, and maybe that's why I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. You know what? Let's have a drink, because I am totally confused now. Because Columbo is your bag. I want a drink. I'm just completely lost. I know. You got to choose pale or dark. Oh, I can't remember what they are. Well, neither can I. So just just for just for the listeners' sake, I have pulled out my amusing little drink set that my friend Stu and Sarah got me for my birthday years ago, which looks like four old hardback books, but when you flip the lid, it's got two little decanters and five shot glasses. I love the one nearest me. The one nearest you, okay. There we go. Let's find out what it is, because I honestly can't remember. It is dark. It is dark. It is pungent. Ooh. Down the hatch. It's fiery. <laughs> That's hot. Anyway, carry on. Last two chapters. Summarise. Okay. So, after the matriarch agrees to listen to what he said, they want to send out some guard to go and try and save Cena before she's killed. Yeah. But as the physician... Physician. 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 Melga points out that they probably won't get there in time because the prince has a huge lead. So what Jumeris says is, I have a plan. And if you can give me some... Shot. Cheers. Have another shot. Cheers. Cheers. Oh. 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 (laughs) Gingerbread rum, that one. That's... Yeah, that that burns a bit, doesn't it? That really, really... Right, carry on. So what he suggests is... That he goes in slow time. Yeah. Which means that he moves 40% faster. Ah. So he has to, in the hope that he can catch up with the prince and Cena before she's murdered. Yeah. Because obviously they'll want to get rid of her. So he goes off running in a different direction to get there the quickest that he can. And the guards have also set off to try and stop the prince. Yeah. In the meantime, the prince... He's being really flirty with Cena, and he's obviously very, very mad. So rather than try and anger him, she yeah. just agrees with what he's he says. He's tittering, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. And, um, and singing ribald songs. Yeah. So basically what he wants is an heir. Yeah. She'll do. Yeah. You know, you'll be a wife for now. If I get fed up with you, I'll get rid of you. Yeah, he might flush her out of an airlock if he gets bored of her. Exactly. So yeah. she's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Keeps quiet. And then... Dumerous catch up and he's watching some of these interactions going on. He runs down. They don't see him coming because he's on slow time. Yeah. And he was about to punch the prince, which would have made his head go... (laughs) But realised his hand would have done the same. Yeah. Because he'd already fallen a few times. Because of the crazy drug. Yeah. Yeah. Because when he fell, he's like falling at like 40% faster. Yeah. So it's a wonder he didn't break somewhat because yeah. he caused these big dents. Yeah. So what he did is threw a stone and the prince's head went... <laughs> like a grapefruit. Absolutely smashed. Yeah. So that was the end of the prince. And then he picked up Cena and ran off back to the, to hide in the hills before the rest of the guards even realised that somebody had been there yep. because of the time. And she woke up. You're doing a grand job shot. Cheers. Why why are we taking so much so nasty? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I need to tell you something. When we first got together, I never ever thought that I might shoot you out of an airlock if I got bored of you. That's really good to know. That's love that, isn't it? But what about now? 
Uh, oh, not even now. Oh, fantastic. That's love, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, do go on. Thank you. So they're in the mountains and he's starting to come out of slow time. Yeah. So he's not as sharp. And then all of a sudden stood over them is Dine. Yeah. Which is when we realise that he's the traitor. Bloody Cyberdyne. Yeah. Because, after all, who else could have known all the stuff to tell the imposter? Yeah. So the matriarch had already gathered this all out. All along. When she was looking in the mirror. Matriarch's pretty sharp. She is. But what he said was, well, I know that you had a child and you're not allowed to have children. And what's even worse is that your dead child's granddaughter yeah. has given birth to Lady Cena. Yeah. So she's rel- she's blood relative, yeah. and a blood relative is not allowed to take over. No. So you can't do anything, or I'll tell all your naughty secrets. Yeah. And the matriarch's like, oh, shit, he's got me. Yeah. So obviously, Dinah then set off after... Jumerous after he heard all this and was going to kill him, but he still had enough of the slow time in him that when Dine shot at him, he was able to avoid it. And then he threw another stone yep. and he killed Dine. Yep. So he smashes two people's heads in with rocks Yes. in the last couple of chapters. And I don't think they were big rocks. No. So you, you see, for me, one of the things I used to love about Conan when I was a kid and I'm not sure if this ever happened in a Conan story, but in my mind it did. might not have happened in a Robert E. Howard one, but maybe it happened in one of the past issues. I always loved the idea that if someone attacked Conan when he was at a feast, he would beat people to death with a ham or a leg of mutton or something. He didn't need a sword. He would just beat him to death with a leg of mutton. <laughs> and I really loved the idea of at the end of this science fiction book where Doomerest has had laser guns shot at him, he kills the two villains by smashing the heads in with a rock. <laughs> Maybe not the same rock, but basically he <laughs> does them both in by smashing the heads in with a rock. Yeah. I like that. I do. And what I realised early on, and I put a bookmark when you were reading to me, Yeah. Dine had said, I do not oppose, I do not aid, I do not take sides, I advise. And yet he's the one who would help to instil this false yeah. Cena yeah. helped her to grow that yeah. she was she was all for cyber people yeah. that she would go in and take over because they knew that Cena didn't like the cyber he was a lying Hitman. shit yes he took sides yeah so how can somebody emotionless do then do that yeah it was all for power he yeah. just wanted to join the big collective to be able to use this new power that they've found, this telepathy, yeah. for the Cyclan to just, I reckon, rule. Yeah, we will find out, if we read them, we will find out more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to read them, because I bought fucking 12 of them. The um, thing is, did you enjoy it enough to buy the 12, or was you just being no, you? Th- well, i tell you what, let's let's get down to it then. We've, we've finished it, mm. rereading those little bits and talking about it, it's funny. I was I was on, I was on Rob Stroke Menion's podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, and we were talking about genre fiction. And I think I made the point on a couple of occasions that good reads are, are good reads, no matter whether they're eight hundred pages long or one hundred and thirty pages long. 
and actually there is space in the marketplace for one ship books for quick reads for exciting rollicking adventure stories and th i think this was a really good example i read this when we were in markham i thoroughly enjoyed it the problem is it's hours in the day when it comes to reading isn't it what can you fit in you you did it one day in our holiday yeah. you carried on and you read it yeah which i know for you means that you really enjoyed it because yeah yeah I have to be on order to read a book from cover to cover in a day. Yes. So she, she can't do it, you know, with work and, and everything else that's going on and, and just, you know, the the fucking mess of daily life. Not that our life is a mess, but you know what I mean, with work and, yes. and all of those different things that you got going on. So when we go on holiday and I get to truly relax, the fact that I read three books from cover to cover over the course of that holiday was... I have to be on holiday to be able to do that. And I thoroughly enjoyed this. I think this absolutely fits into that category of... Just a good, solid, entertaining adventure story. And actually, in this case, it's a combination. It's part Western. It's part science fiction. It's part Columbo mystery. This this is a, a fast-paced, page-turning, rollicking adventure story. Doomrest is quite an interesting character. You've got that mystery about Earth. It's not Earth-shatteringly deep. It's not Umberto Eco. We know that. But it is really good genre fiction. And it's left me wanting to know more about Doomeress. Yeah. Because you don't learn a lot. Like the man with no name. Yeah. You don't learn a lot. Just bits. You get yeah. snippets. And it keeps you interested enough. Yeah. I read it and I enjoyed it. I read it a second time and loved it a lot more. Talking about it today, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I've re and yes, I am much more of a Columbo who done it. Yeah. And I liked all that side of it. And I was engaged in it yeah i was happy to put that time away to do it yeah and i'm glad i did yeah i honestly can't believe i had these books for such a long time and never read them and gave them all to charity shops and and now i don't feel so bad for having kind of bought them back again i know that there's something in my personality where i just can't help myself especially when we're on holiday and we're buying secondhand books and stuff like that but i do have the first five books now and over the next few weeks i am going to read the second one just out of curiosity. And when you do, give it to me. I will do. Because I definitely would. Because I'm at that point, I want to know what happens next. Mm. I don't know if the matriarch and the lady Cena go. Yeah. And he goes on to a new adventure. I think that's the case. I think... That's the, a ruiner for me. Well, this is this is only my assumption. I think easily every one is like an episode of a science fiction series where there might be a tiny thread of an arc... But it's episodic, uh, and next time it'll be on a different mm. world. But you know what? Let's find out. Yeah. We might not cover it on the podcast, but you know, let's find out for ourselves just out of interest, anyway. Yeah, because you know, you know me. I love to read, and I've I've been reading a few trilogies recently, and I have to keep keep going. I want the end. Yeah. And I love it. And I've recently, as I say, finished this again. I'm happy to go on to the second. Yeah. Because I'm invested enough to want to know what happens next. And I love the fact that during it, you talk, you think about June, you think about Westerns, yeah. but you also think which came first. Yeah, yeah. And I know in some of the cases you've told me this was written before or after and stuff. Yeah. But I find it all really fascinating. And like you say, it also brings in other things like Alien, yeah. which I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. I just really love the idea that when James Cameron 
created the Terminator. I mean, it's something that doesn't really get acknowledged much, I don't think, is that the Terminator really takes a Philip K. Dick short story called Second Variety and builds a film out of it. That never really gets gets mentioned or noticed much, but that's definitely the case. I think he was influenced by Second Variety by Philip K. Dick, but also the fact that Cyberdyne Systems is named to the letter after Cyberdyne is too much of a coincidence. Unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so James Cameron... Sci-fi fan, probably reading these books at the time, picking up bits and pieces. Dan O'Bannon, maybe picking up bits and pieces. Just these little seeds, these little earworms that end up in there like a song that you can't shake out of your head that stays there for ages. And you go on and you create your own stuff. This is how creativity works, isn't it? But I, I, I must say, when I had those books on, on my shelf that Pops gave me, and I never really considered that... The Doomerest books might have been so influential as they were. I just thought they were throwaway genre stuff. But if you hadn't have started the podcast, would you have read them again? Um, no, I think the only reason we read The Winds of Gath is because we were in the old peer bookshop yep. and we wanted to find two copies of something. Yeah. Had we not been doing the podcast, I would have looked at it and gone, oh yeah, I had them years ago and got rid of them. I, I, I would yep. not have bought them again. We only bought this because there were two copies of it and we made a plan to do this. <laughs> exactly. You know? So a, a, another fantastic tick in the box for podcasting. Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, because it's, it's caused us to, to discover something new and entertaining. And another sci-fi author that I've never read and I've thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. I would recommend this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've, we've finished off these two little decanters, so we can't do any more shots. There's... Oh no! Oh. Hang on, let's do one more for the road. <laughs> we might only get half a shot each of this. That's fine. It's so horrible. I know it's it's not that good, is it? This is my fault. I got you this for Christmas, didn't I? This is the gingerbread room I got you for Christmas. The, the sad thing is, at our age, if we don't like something, we shouldn't be going. Yeah, let's just finish it. <laughs> well, you know what? But it's been a really good. All I can say is, you shouldn't tell people the price of things that you buy them as presents, but it won't cheap. Cheers, baby. Cheers. Uh, on that fucking uh, disgusting bombshell, actually, that was actually it got better. It is getting better. I think, it, but I think it's like when you have a really hot chili sauce, it destroys seventy percent of your taste buds. But you know what? You're right. That third hit of that wasn't as bad. Is actually starting to get quite pleasant mm. in a medicinal, weird way. Not a whiskey medicinal. No, 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 shit, no, not whiskey medicinal. <laughs> Just in actually quite a pleasant way. That's actually not bad. That's actually not bad. Don't mean we have to buy any more, though. Don't mean we have to buy any more. We, we, we won't buy any more, but <laughs> we will maybe drink what we've got. Yes, and maybe now that we've emptied that beautiful decanter yeah. that Stu and Sarah got you, which yeah. is really it's amazing. It's pretty fucking great, isn't it? With the tiny six shot glasses, yeah. that uh, we should put some new spirits in them. Yeah. One of the patrons drops us a line via um, whatever method... Direct message me if you want one of these copies. Tell me, do you want the 60p knackered copy or do you want the Porn Star stash copy? Let me know. Because although it's sort of disintegrated in the corners at the back, yeah. it isn't falling apart. No, it's band's quite tight, isn't it? I've read it twice and yeah. there's been no problems, but I don't think we can take it to charity. Oh, no. We'll not take it to charity. So I'm more than, more than happy if somebody else wants to... Enjoy this book as I have done. Yeah. So on that porn star stash bombshell, I don't know. On, <laughs> on that shot-driven 
gingerbread rum bombshell. That's it for today's sesh. So, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, babe. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Absolutely. Who knows what we'll do. Well, we haven't decided what we're going to read next. Well, I did talk to Graham potentially about doing Crabs on the Rampage to complete the Cliff Davenport trilogy. Oh, it makes sense. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, but I've got two copies of it. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So that's I can see Maybe that in my future. <laughs> oh, yes. And of course, we will be back soon with Mad God's Amulet Part 2 with Dave, which I'm recording in a couple of days, and uh, a couple of weeks, Fortress of the Pearl, Book 2 with Loz. Fantastic. So we have a slate. Things are coming. Oh, yes. Cheers, babe. All right. See you later. See you later. Well, I'll see you in 30 seconds when I send this off and we'll get more booze. <laughs> Massive thanks to Phil for joining me and Darian Toms, being my rock as ever, and guiding me through this one. Thanks also to all of you that sent birthday wishes. It's much appreciated and there were some wonderful surprises in there too. I've been overwhelmed and humbled not only by your support, but by your kindness too. Now I said in the intro, I'd return to the unfeasibly and ridiculously massive encyclopedia of science fiction, and so I will, to check out the entry on Doomerest. So let's see what it says. The next decade saw few EC subtitles until the start of the long series for which he remains best known, the Doomerest books, beginning with The Winds of Gath in 1967. El Doomerest, who features in each volume, maintains with Soldier of Fortune Fortitude a long search for Earth, the planet on which he was born, and from which he was rested at an early age, but must battle against the universal belief that Earth is a myth. Inhabited planets are virtually innumerable. The period is some time after the collapse of a galactic empire, and everyone speaks the same language. And, as Doomerest moves gradually out from the galactic centre along a spiral arm of stars, it's clear that he is gradually nearing his goal. The opposition he faces, from the Cyclan, a vast organisation of passionless humans linked cybernetically to a central organic computer whose location is unknown, long led readers to assume that the Cyclan HQ was located on Earth, but the sequence stopped, perhaps at the behest of its publishers, at a somewhat inconclusive point. Though some of the later middle titles seemed aimless, E.C. Tubb showed consistent skill at prolonging Doomerest's intense suspense about the outcome of his long quest. Ah. Disappointing, then, that there was never actually a conclusion, but I kind of had the sense that was the case. So that might save us some time on answering some of those gnarly questions that we had, but nevertheless, I'm still going to read book two, Dorsi. Stay tuned after the transition for the last of the latest batch of chapters to conclude volume two of the Journal of Gerard... Stay tuned after the transition for the last of the latest batch of chapters that will conclude volume two of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, and I'm well on with writing volume three, Meanwhile, though, massive thanks, as ever, to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Sebastian Wietabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. And our chaos engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Ben Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, a.k.a. Rob, Check out the latest issue of Rob's podcast, of course, as mentioned in the main interview. Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And of course, thanks to our Jugaderos. Alexander Harris, Dave Dalrymple, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, 
Toby White, Tom Murphy, and, brand new to the Donblass, Mark Hebden and Jason Connolly. Thanks, chaps. Mark dropped us a line to say, Greetings from sunny Stockport. Just opened a can of salted caramel billionaire stout. Like drinking alcoholic chocolate. I first came across Mocock books in my local library in the late 70s. I used to sneak into the adult section and stare at the covers of Conan, Tarzan and various Mocock books. It took to my late 40s to actually read one and it all just clicked into place. Now, thanks to eBay and beer, there are books arriving weekly. I love all Hawkmoon and Coram and thanks to the podcast, I've found lots of music, books, etc. to explore. As a long-time Guy and Smith reader, the Crabs episode was fantastic. Enjoy the podcast immensely. Cheers. And cheers to you, Mark. The voyages of discovery and the rabbit holes persist through middle age, as I've just found out once again with this show. But I do envy you what I wouldn't give to discover Morcock all over again. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons. Joe Monty, Clarky the Cruel, Andy Darby, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Jenny Stim, Lapsed Gamer, Liam J, Miles Reed Labato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, thanks for the additional love, Steve, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, Robert McMillan. Now, Andy Darby, author of Me and the Monkey, available at All Good Stockists, dropped me a line to say, I need to tell you that I'm ploughing through all the back episodes and they're keeping me massively entertained as I work at my day job. Brackets, stab self in eye with pen, close brackets. I would love to come on and talk me and the monkey, and definitely Mocock, and to be honest, any other shit that you want to get into. Listening to your booze-fueled dissections of the stories has once again emphasised how much I owe to Mr. Mocock for the way my degenerate mind works. I suddenly realised while I was writing Me and the Monkey Volume 2 that it was pretty much an eternal champion character, but unapologetically bringing chaos to an unsuspecting world in a schizophrenic, drunken rampage of utter fuckery. Let's get that set up, Andy. Uh, More drunken fuckery is right in my wheelhouse. Okay, this has been yet another extremely long one. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via the terrific radio garden via either app or browser. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins or look at the Bradford UK blob on Radio Garden. We've got our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, until we meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly Chapter 13 Brainer's Creed We travelled for several weeks, possibly months. At times I would question why I did not more frequently consider my sanity, so bizarre had my predicament been since stumbling away from the officer's mess at Coltishall. But I could only sense that my ability to take a great deal of it in my stride was perhaps down to some peculiar character trait, hitherto unexposed by my path up until now. Or, this was all an elaborate dream. Why was I not constantly consumed with schemes and plans to engineer a return to my own world? 
This seeming failure on my part to rationalise and resolve my situation, to feel some sense of urgency, only troubled me infrequently, as if my irritated subconscious only hammered itself briefly against a wall of fancy before retreating with a shrug. But I was still dreaming within this most tangible of phantasmagorias. This particular night I awoke most sharply and with a great heave. I was dancing with hair to a vigorous skiffle. Her skin was darkening and peeling back as if a stage curtain. Her hair was smouldering, then retreating back to her scalp like an angry fuse, her eyelids melting to expose bloodshot eyes that rolled back into her blackened skull as we fell through gashes in smouldering, twisting and crying superstructure, warped by the terrific heat of the ventral weaponry of the enemy, to join many other shrieking dancers and plunge downwards like discarded candles into an abyss. Brainer was at the stern of our skiff, tightening the rigging along the backstairs. She had ceased being surprised at my frequently histrionic manner of working. She passed me a cup of hot, bitter something or other that she called Akun. Whilst not tea, it did provide something of a buzz and cleared the senses. I blew at the steaming surface as my eyes focused and the post-sleep myopia receded. Stretching my neck out and taking some perverse pleasure in the familiar clicks and pops, I stood and offered to relieve my companion at the helm. After mouthing some soothing and encouraging words that I could barely hear to our enormous mounts, she released the control prods to me. The three gastropods did hear, however, and their proboscises turned gently in unison to apparently acknowledge them. These mighty beasts bore our skiff along wide tracks of exudate, long since laid by others and reinforced by repeated travel. These roads were largely safe, but I was beginning to understand that the disruptions to this world, or sphere, created unexpected changes that necessitated a keen eye and constant attention. The vessel was named Stress on My Mince, and I do confess I choked on a pastry when Brainer mentioned this. It had the likeness of old Romany caravans that I would admire in my youth, but this was old and less well maintained than those particular works of art. It rested on the backs of the three beasts to which it was bound by what to me seemed like military grade barbed wire, but Brainer had assured me that the hides of the steeds were so thick anything else would not register to their nerves, and without that sensation they would not maintain that harmonious balance that made the stress such a comfortable and stable ride. It was steered by means of electric prods that were wound up semi-regularly to restore the charge. Each impulse caused the steeds to moan in a kind of close harmony that sounded haunting and at times beautiful, if somewhat mournful. On at least one occasion I had sensed or discerned some form of meaning. It was always fleeting and faded before I could fully manifest a tear, but it came close several times. It was another very odd sensation to add to all the others that I had experienced here. Longing, as I did on every waking for a capstan full strength, I checked our heading. We were heaving close to a number of crumbling edifices that may have been ruins. Aided by the memory of a close shave some days back, I squeezed the grip of the steering prods and twisted clockwise to steer our mounts onto a wider berth. They groaned in acquiescence and the skiff ponderously turned course. 
The closest of the towering piles caught a shaft of the dawn's saffron sunbeams, and I was sure a reflective glint indicated something polished at the summit. Glass, or metal perhaps. Brenner joined me at the prow. What happened here? I asked. What happened to all places? To my world too? It will happen to yours, if it hasn't already. This was a rather dismal outlook, I thought. My face must have betrayed that. Fret not, friend Connolly. There will ever be reasons to smile. Rain was falling now. I hadn't noticed it before Brainer's face tilted skyward. Eyes shut tightly. Crow's feet splayed and mouth opened to catch it. I laughed with delight and followed suit. The droplets, like most things here, tasted like something half-forgotten. Off in some hard-to-define way, yet oddly comforting. Stiff-necked, I tightened my collar. Brainer was watching me. A shape of the scarred head and a low chuckle presaged a long period of serene quietude as our steeds bore stress onwards and we rigged old canvas sheets against the downpour. Life felt sometimes like such a bizarre contrivance. How long to the rocks? I asked eventually, more to break the monotony than anything. As ever, the reply was patient. Another day or two. The disruption in this area seems to be limited. The City of the Rocks has a stabilising influence, more so when the captains gather. Our vessel was just one of many of its type I had learned. Why do the captains persevere? I thought out loud. I mean, their people have to contend with the bizarre state of affairs surrounding them. Surely the way to live and prosper is to be a collective, create and celebrate shared goals and work together to hold back the decay, or whatever's happening here. Brenner nodded. It is peculiar to the geology of their society, I suspect, that they invest so much faith in their captains. They as individuals own nothing of note and have no land, or inheritance, or hereditary obligations. They just emerge as the most trusted, or competent, or loved, and on they go. But that is the way to defeat, surely, I said. These paths and trails can be travelled as they always have been, but what does it achieve? Whom does it reward? Where is the collective benefit? Some sort of order is required to hold back the tide. Brenner considered my words. Communities prosper by tradition, by belief, by culture. Time and patience and kindness create a positive order. Order doesn't equal regulation or restriction. Law is a sickness, a disease of the mind, created and enforced to proliferate inequality and justify the vindictiveness of one group towards another. I struggled with this. To me, it seemed a naive and simplistic take. She read my face and waited. Her left brow arched expectantly, something I'd come to recognise as anticipation. I identify with what you're saying about inequality, but the tendency to conflict seems to me to be built into us. To people, I mean. I was probably pursing my lips as I tried to order my thoughts before articulating myself. A tell I'd had pointed out to me in the past when playing cribbage. Without the rule of law, we'd never get anywhere. I count anarchists amongst my dearest friends and they mean well, but their theories rarely make it past the barstools they perch upon. And when they do, they fall to pieces in a mess of Benedictine, mushrooms and scaffolati. Brenner actually scoffed. Loudly, but oddly cheerfully. Listen to yourself, Connolly. The rule of law. 
It's such rules created by lawmakers that led to the desolation here and across a million other worlds. Rules that proliferate cruelness and justify atrocity to the weak-minded perpetrator. Despite our having been together for some time, Brainer was now studying my uniform. It was rather worse for wear, and I'd neglected self-maintenance largely as a side effect of being so displaced from normality, but I suddenly felt self-conscious. My sideburns had grown shaggy and my hair unruly. Two of my brass buttons were clinging on for dear life and my tunic had been a tasty snack for some of the marsh bugs, and there were stains where my swatting had been too rough. These legends, or icons, what do they represent? She asked. I pointed out my rank and explained the insignia of their majesty's airship corps. You serve a monarch? She laughed lightly. It was not a question, yet I was nevertheless compelled to respond. Their majesty is a figurehead, really. As head of state, they have relinquished much of the power of their forebears. They have been a radical reformist and are much respected by their subjects. Subjects, she cackled now. I was affronted, but her outburst was also endearing. Sheepishly, because I realised how it sounded, and her mirth was contagious, I continued my defence. There was a time when our society was deeply divided, even down to the smallest communities, and the monarchy was one of the drivers. It was archaic, stultifying, ugly in its myopia and protectionism, and it was facilitated by a failed state that promoted greed and individualism, but only from a materialistic perspective. Fortunately, my parents' generation rejected division and hate, although not without pain and conflict. I was young, but I remember the hate mobs whipped up by tall tales and fear-mongery. They dismantled that state through passion and will. I looked down at my bedraggled dress uniform. This image, these accoutrements, long stood for oppression and stasis, but we reclaimed them, made them stand for something more, and those who once were threatened by this uniform now wear it proudly, because it represents our ability to change. Social status, or... I tugged at my sideburns. Noble position no longer guarantees rank or privilege. Some that had those advantages adapted well to the new ways, others less so. Many fled and transferred their assets elsewhere, and the worst of them pushed back. Now they perpetrate atrocities and call themselves true patriots and libertarians, but they only stand for vitriol and stagnation. We fight to protect what was won, a kind society. Although not looking entirely convinced, Brenner nodded sagely and ceased to mock me. Instead of healing the sickness and division in the real world, she observed, these people seek to remove what they fear and loathe from the world of ideas, because they see themselves as operating on a higher level, and damn those that disagree with their methods. The ideological purity required of such zealots must rack them with self-hate. We continued in silence for a while. Unusually, it was Brainer that broke it. When my world succumbed to the arrow, when I fell under the hail from their aggressors, this purity of purpose was at its most crystalline and terrible. A soft light began to emanate from a calloused palm as Brainer focused intently, an unusual amount of strain in the voice. Even the blooders were denied access to the wounded, most being lumped in with the fighters, and most of those cut or shot down or hanged after the fact. Later, they set sentinels at far intervals and I could see the glow of their fire pits and hear their hails to one another's loneliness throughout long dusk. 
That was the first time the night never truly came. I seized my futile attempts to re-sew a tattered tunic cuff and set to listening. It felt like days I laid there. The sentinels would permit no policing of the dead, and I know none of my siblings that left the field living. Most did not leave it at all, even dead. Those hundreds or perhaps thousands that survived the fight bled to death, or drown on their own liquidised lungs, all consumed by the creatures that made their homes in the growths upon which we lay, and there they fell into decay. I did not take her references to siblings literally. I made the assumption that it was used as we may refer to our brothers or sisters in arms. She continued. Some were beaten or stabbed by the sentinels. Bitter at having to be on duty, I suppose, when their comrades were no doubt sleeping and drinking away their triumph. I could hear them cursing into the gloom at the crying and moaning from the field, and, once their ire was raised sufficient, they would leave their fires and take it out on the near to death. The starboard slug moaned slightly, as if in sympathy. That was how I was able to sneak towards and escape the perimeter, although holding my gizzards in with one hand and slapping away the creatures that sought to dine on them made it slow work. All the while, Brain and nurtured the flame cupped in that hand, and I fancied that it licked into shapes that took on the lightness of words before twisting and dancing anew. Seeing my contemplation, Brainer held it towards me, offering it, I realised. But I instinctively recoiled. Not for the first time, and certainly not the last, a flicker of disappointment killed the conversation, and I felt ashamed. We travelled for three more nights before reaching the City of the Rocks. I did not dream.